This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. It's the show where we give you uh, the tools, the ideas, the information you need to grow a healthier, happier life. We're not going to tell you how to do it. We're just going to tell you what the experts are saying, other ways, you know, insights. Welcome to the program. Today we'll be talking minimum wage. You know, is a, is a bump in uh, the minimum wage, is that the way to go? Is that what we need to be doing? I mean, there's a lot of people that can't even get an apartment. For heaven's sakes. James lives in a trailer. And that's an upgrade from the cardboard box. And he's married. He lives in a trailer. It's a fridge box. In front of a Walmart. So much better than the box, though. Yeah. I'm happy. That's a great point. You could partition the fridge box, but now. But when it rains, did you notice that his, his house gets real soggy? Yeah. Yeah. So minimum wage. It's. Something to discuss. Now, as a business owner, you start changing minimum wage, that's going to impact me. I'm going to have to get rid of somebody. I'm going to have to hire fewer relatives. Anyway, But is that an adjustment that's needed to get us to a point that's better? Right. Yeah. Because the disparity of income, never been higher. The richer, richer. The poorer, poorer. So let's pay the poor more. Could be. Yeah. Not sure. There's a lot of economic stuff involved. There's, there's a lot of debate going on. We'll talk about that. Kerry uh, Wasden will be joining us. He is a professor here at Brigham Young University in BYU, Hawaii. He's going to be – he's an economist, basically. He's going to teach us the ins, the outs, the ups, the downs. You know, who Cause, doesn't? Because we can, we can guess what the impact would be. He, he'd have a better idea through research and things yeah, like that. Yeah, he's kind of smart with the, them, yeah. number, them number things. He done – Know the numbers. <laughs> you don't know the numbers. The rest of us just happy to be here today. Um, so that's going on. Interesting stuff. Uh, apparently, our great friend from uh, FIFAdom, Sepp Blatter, Senior Blatter is he's retired. He's quit in three to nine months. In three to nine months, <laughs> he he's he's done. He's going to step down, which is interesting because. He was the most powerful man ever, uh, and uh, only the only person apparently less powerful was – I mean the, the only person more powerful was either God, which he thought he was. But he's, he sells jewelry in Brooklyn we that's learned right. yesterday. We that. It's Someone a different else. guy. Thought. Or Hitler apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I mean so the, the head of FIFA stepping down. So he's stepping down, but the uh, he is now a focus of U.S. criminal investigation into the corrupt fee, in, in the corruption in FIFA. He has not been publicly identified as a target for the investigation, so the FBI has yet to comment on that. The New York Times reported Tuesday that U.S. officials are hoping to extract information from some of the 14 FIFA officials who have already been arrested and charged, then work their way up the organization from there. Hmm. Which is interesting because that, as it says here. Just like they did against the mafia. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's weird. You get the uh, they get the high ups, but not necessarily the top. And then you start making deals and work your way up to the big guy. Tell you tell the big guy falls. Blatter asked the organization to organize a Congress to elect a successor in the next three months or so. Wow! And he will continue on in his office until a, a uh, replacement is named and elected. Well, but it seems like if they've got something on him. Um, he won't make it three months. As it says, the an unnamed high-ranking FIFA official who prosecutors say handled a $10 million bribe is reportedly Secretary General Jerome Vackley, who's a under, like one of the uh, subordinates to the president, uh, who is second only to Sepp Blatter, allegedly transferred the money in 08 from the organization's account to another soccer official's account. The federal authorities believe these funds served as a bribe to grant South Africa the 2010 World Cup. Mm. Uh, this uh, secretary general is not named in the indictment, which came out last week, and the involved parties dispute accusations that the money was indeed a bribe. What? 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 It wasn't a bribe. It was just a really get a good gift. And and they they kind of make it sound like that nobody at FIFA really knew this ten million dollars moved. Yeah. And a New York Times reporter on Twitter yesterday was talking about how he went, went back looked through the bylaws and only three or four people can make this type of a transaction with this much money. So three or four, or four people are, are the only ones that can move ten million. And the yet, president, mm-hmm. this uh, gener- no, secretary general guy, and there's a couple other people, and that's it. And none of them are saying they had any idea this money moved. Well, but. It's ten million. I mean, I could see a hundred million. You'd all know where that went, right? But ten million, like, it's just ten million. Yeah, it's couch cushion money. <laughs> Something that may be affecting the United States in all this. In the spring of 2014, international soccer officials made a historic announcement. The Copa America, one of the world's largest and oldest, most prestigious tournaments, was coming to the U.S. for the first time. American officials saw the choice as validation of the game's continued growth in this country. The Rose Bowl, other California venues quickly stepped up as to be hosts of the event. But now the federal prosecutors in the uh, going after FIFA, the sports governing body, have charged Copa America organizers with receiving tens of millions of dollars in longstanding, a longstanding pan- pattern of bribery. Wow. So the, it could all fall apart is what they're saying. So it raises doubts about whether the 2016 edition of the tournament will actually reach American shores. Traditionally, the event brought together national teams from across South America. You know, it used to be that soccer was hard to watch because there was very little scoring. It could end in a tie. There were flops. Yes. The bribery is starting to turn me off. (laughs) (laughs) That's the corruption now. It's the corruption. It's starting to give me a bad taste. It's not the game itself anymore. It's the actual corruption off the field. I used to love soccer before all the corruption. (laughs) I don't know. It's like a soap opera now. It's great. I think it adds interest in my mind. I'm like, ooh, who knew what when? How much money did that organizer get to put that soccer game there? It's actually (laughs) the part of sports that I enjoy the most. It's the Everything off the field. It's the backstory. The backstory to soccer is always more exciting than the actual match. (laughs) It's so interesting. Also, this, you know, other stories. Are there other stories? Tuesday night, President Obama signed into law a measure to rein in the National Security Agency's bulk collection of Americans' telephone data, the USA Freedom Act. Freedom Act, it's here. We'll mainly take away storage of so-called metadata from the hands of the NSA and leave it with the telephone companies. Ah, the people we can trust. Though they could still be compelled to turn the data over to the government with... You know what is so uh, funny about that is how many times have we been... 
afraid of the tele the these companies because you know we feel like we're scammed and whatever. Yeah. But now we're like, oh, I'm so glad they've got my data, not the NSA. It's like it just seems like you know the enemy of your enemy is your friend and the uh, or your telephone company. Last month, several former senior intelligence officials reportedly said that the bill to limit the NSA's power, the USA Freedom Act, is still a big win for the agency. It's still a big win. Yeah. So if you change it, you take away the Patriot Act, but give us the USA Freedom Act. We'll take it. We still win. Either way. So. And this is only, this is only what what are they calling it? Article two fifteen in the Act. Yes. So most of it, that's it's still one there. through two hundred and fourteen. We haven't yeah. even addressed if there is that many. Yeah. Uh, Senator Kerry yes. underwent four hours of surgery Tuesday, emerging in good condition, and was. Preparing to start walking again today after doctors set his broken right leg at Massachusetts General uh, Hospital. He was uh, conscious throughout the operation, they said. What? The, the procedure was uncomplicated. The fracture was fully repaired, and we plan to get him up walking later today, they say. They anticipate a short hospital stay, and they do not anticipate this will interfere with his duties as Secretary of State, other than the crutches and the wheelchairs. And the wheelchairs and, yeah, the huge airplane that it took to get him out of (laughs) But that's what he flies in. They have this, like, secure desk situation in the middle. That's where he sits. It's on, like, pallets. It's like a James Bond villain, (laughs) Dr. Evil. But he's just our Secretary of State. He's a great guy. He just had four hours of surgery. But what did it say? He emerged... In great condition. But can you imagine somebody emerging from four hours of surgery? That They probably looked horrible. They're putting a spin on it. And uh, to go with our next segment about the minimum wage, Walmart announced Tuesday that it is raising the starting wage for more than 100,000 of its U.S. workers, including department managers and workers in specialized divisions. The wage increase will go into effect next month. Workers in Walmart's deli and wireless production services – or wireless product services will now earn between nine ninety and eighteen eighty one an hour, compared with the range of nine twenty to eighteen fifty three an hour before. What just in those two departments? For example, oh, okay. they're, they're just giving you a couple. But everyone's of, pretty much getting a raise at Walmart. Then. Meanwhile, department managers in electronics and automotive care will earn between thirteen and twenty four an hour, compared with ten dollars and twenty dollars before. This is fun. That's so great people news. are. And they're also, they also announced they're, they're raising their uh, company-wide minimum wage, and they're making some changes that way. a boy. That's great. See, that's Walmart. That's Not, good. And, but then I did tell you, 1968, yeah. minimum wage was $1.60 an hour, yeah. which compares to $11 an hour now. Yeah, see, so it didn't keep up with the... And now, so you take the seven twenty-five. I think is the minimum wage here in the, in the state of Utah, Yeah, and you backtrack that to 1968... That's a dollar four an hour in comparison. Wow. So, yeah, inflation, maybe that's an issue to – should we keep minimum wage on track with inflation? Is that a, a smart idea? Wow. Or is it market forces that yeah, should Yeah, what do you do? Yeah. I mean, ugh. I had a, one of my kids was going to come work for me, and he's like, how much am I going to make, Dad? And I'm like, I don't know, five bucks? He's like, well, isn't minimum wage like seven twenty-five? And I just said, be quiet. Solve that problem. <laughs> We're talking minimum wage when we come back. Kerry uh, Wazden's going to be joining us. He's an economics professor and finance professor at BYU Hawaii. We're going to pick his brain on uh, this whole idea 
I mean, it's a, it's an interesting thing. Minimum wage. What is the real cost of minimum wage? How should this be? Uh, how is it that we that we just set a minimum wage? And how do businesses afford it? We'll be talking about all of that coming up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in 1938, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed a Fair Labor Standards Act as as part of the New Deal, marking the creation of the first minimum wage. Since then, the federal minimum wage has been raised 22 times. And now, recently in Los Angeles, California, lawmakers are trying to raise, actually they did raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, which will begin by the year 2020. So we wanted to know what type of impact raising the minimum wage has on companies and and really on the people. Even uh, an increase in the minimum wage, is it really helping and are we helping the the right kind of contingent of people, the right the right uh the, the right economic standard? Are we are we helping the people that need it the most? So who better to help us than Kerry Wasden, professor of finance and economics at BYU Hawaii, who happens to be in town uh, doing a little uh, – what are you doing here? Just a little – In theory, I'm on sabbatical. Sabba- is this a sabbatical? <clears throat> yeah. Now, interesting. Your son, Ben, is a member of our team. Yep. And he loves it. Is it he's the best ever. He is good. He sleeps a lot. He doesn't at home. Doesn't he? Because it's weird. I don't think he gets enough sleep at home. But he comes there and he just sleeps. He runs our Twitter page. So if anybody's following us on Twitter, it's because of Ben. And he's fun. And by the way, a really weird little factoid, Ben went on an LDS mission and I happened to have gone to – I went to Hawaii to visit family. And while I was there, I saw a friend of mine named Vaughn Orgill who was retiring as the head of the Polynesian Cultural Center. And as he was retiring at church, they just did an aloha oi farewell. Amazing thing. It was beautiful. It's the most beautiful thing. It really it is. It's where everyone just sings aloha, aloha oi. But uh, it happened to be Ben's homecoming. So I was there and saw Ben when he came. No, no, his farewell. When he was leaving yeah. on his mission, I saw Ben before I ever knew Ben. And then now Ben works here for us. And now his dad's just sitting right here. And I'm glad to be here. It's awesome to have you. Talk to us about this minimum wage. So I'm a business owner as well. And if my state, like California, came and told me I needed to pay my employees $15 an hour, I'd be in trouble. You would. And when you put it in perspective, they're coming to you and saying, pay $15 an hour. And by the way, that's a 50% raise from what you've been paying. From like, let's say, seven twenty. And to we're, 15. We're talking in the marketplace about inflation not existing and you're going to your small companies and saying, oh, and by the way, now pay your employees yeah. 50% more than you were last year. Inflation doesn't exist, but we are going to make it exist. We'll induce it. Induced. Now, it, they're doing it for a reason, right? Because there hasn't been inflation or uh, it, the minimum wage hasn't been increasing with cost of living and inflation. Yeah. Now, so the current rate is the same it's been since July of 2009. Yeah. So clearly there has been some inflation taking place. And throughout the U.S. economy, uh, payrolls have been stagnant for about 15 years. Hmm. So it's not just the minimum wage people. It's everybody. Yeah. And we're all trying to do more with less. 
And it's an absolutely noble endeavor to yeah. look at people who are at the bottom of the income levels and say, look, these people are not able to make it. We need to, to adjust that. And we're adjusting Social Security for cost of living. By and large, most of us who are on salary with organizations, we're getting some sort of an annual increase for cost right. of living. And those who are at the level of minimum wage don't. Hmm. So there's a very legitimate argument to say we need to adjust these for at least whatever the cost of living is. Um, whether it should come as a government dictate or not <clears throat> is a theoretical and a moral discussion that's probably much more than you want to cover in a, yeah. in a show like this. But the impacts are remarkable. In the class that you hoped you'd never have to remember, which is your econ class. Yeah, I don't even remember it. Uh, we have the basic description about what's happening to minimum wage. And we say, look, if wages are set by the market, we have this clearing price and everything's happy. Right. But if the government institutes a wage that is higher than equilibrium, we're going to have more people who want to work and less demand for the labor. The empirical evidence, though, doesn't show that. Huh. We don't actually see this great dislocation when minimum wage is increased. Uh, we do send, tend to see a little bit of a pickup in wage-related inflation, as you would expect if your rates yeah. are going to go up by 50%. So you don't see what, what everyone's complaining about and worried about, that we're going to have to lay people off, fire people. You don't necessarily see that. doesn't happen. And not only that, but in a very non-derogatory way, the component of the labor structure that this really applies to are people who are working in fast food industries, people who are working at the bottom end of the production businesses. Yeah. Very few people really work at the minimum wage, certainly at the federal minimum wage because right. most states already have a minimum wage that's higher than that. Well, you were even hearing Walmart. Walmart's moving. There's, they're, they're starting rates in certain departments at about nine ninety. Yeah. But in that same department, they're making – they could make $19. Yeah. So – but it it's almost seems like minimum wage – it, it seems like it used to be what we would pay our kids to work to flip burgers, and, and now it's not. Now we're always hearing the argument being these people can't even get homes; they can't get an apartment. And that's the moral argument to be had, because if you look at the structures of the labor market, we have good-paying jobs in the hundred thousand dollars a year range that go unmet. Hmm. So we're bringing in. People from other countries who right. have the skills necessary to fill those jobs. And those jobs are literally, if you look at the, the surveys of major corporate leaders, they're saying that they cannot find the skilled labor that they're looking for. And these are really good paying jobs. Right. And so we're letting those jobs go unfilled or being filled by uh, people yeah, with H-1B state, visas. Yeah. And what we're doing is we're subsidizing the people who are working in food services. And the moral message that we're sending is <clears throat> this is a job that's legitimate and worthy to have for the rest of your life. And what we should be saying is this is a great way for you to take care of things if you need to. Right. If you're in an urgent situation or uh, down on your luck, yeah, step in here. We'll make sure that you can cover your expenses. But this isn't where you stay. This is not a lifetime occupation. Yeah, it almost seems like you'd want to disincentivize it. So yeah. it's not somewhere they want to stay and, in, in fact, make the next step up more of an incentive. And what you see is we've had this huge crowding out occur where you go into a McDonald's now and these are all adults working behind yeah. the counters. This used to be our kids in high school working in the afternoons and the evenings and the mornings to make a little extra money. <clears throat> that part of the labor market has completely shifted and largely our kids are at home playing Xbox. But um, <clears throat> Sad but true. They're not working part-time. That's like right. Is 
But it also seems like then this is why we need um, we need uh, immigration. We need other other countries and people to come in and take jobs that we wouldn't do normally. But then yeah. our idea is bring them in, but then pay them more. Yeah, and versus just paying our children to do the jobs, or would our kids just not do the jobs? I think in the current generation, your kids have no interest because the parents have – we've moved from a one-income-earning family to a two-income-earning family. True. Huh? Uh, we're giving our kids enough resources to where they don't need to go and work. In our era, when we wanted to buy a pair of jeans, we had to go get a job to get the jeans. Yeah. And now we're buying $300 jeans for our kids. <laughs> <clears throat> so the dynamic is definitely different. But the objective is to try and bring people into the labor force – Possibly at the lower levels initially, but then to get an education yeah. and to get them skilled and then to move on to the higher income earning jobs. What we're doing is we're allowing these people to come in and encouraging them to stay by giving them a livable wage in a right. job that is barely above the poverty level. Yeah, And so they're always going to be in that job and they're always going to be appealing for a little increase in the in the pay rate and they're always going to be on some sort of welfare, whether that's food stamps or supplementary, supplementary assistance. If we can create the incentive to say this is temporary, not a life-earning position, and move them on to the more trained, skilled labor, then we can fill those positions that we're already bringing people in from other countries to fill. Well, and you can subsidize the education. I mean, these are the same people that would get the grants, the Pell grants, the education yeah. grants. So, But then... And maybe they have to work two jobs or overtime in order to even pay for the apartment to go. I mean, it's a really weird, it's a really weird position we're in because we we we've learned this with a lot of things. The government can't change a system without impacting the entire system. Yep. So if they change minimum wage and make it fifteen dollars, you really have created major inflation, major costs and overhead for a company now. Um, and yet you might also be incentivizing people to not progress and to not move on. Every summer of my life, I worked in Scipio, Utah, which if you've ever had a flat tire on I-15, that was in Scipio, Utah. That's right. It's always in Scipio. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a petting zoo there, so you can at least uh, – oh, I didn't know. The tires being changed, you can go pet the cat. Is that where you work? <laughs> no. <laughs> the petting zoo. But that taught me that I didn't want to do that. Yeah. And I Get was paid enough and I flipped bales and branded cows and – and I knew, look, this isn't where I want to end up. Yeah. And so I got an education and moved on. Uh, that is a very good social role of these type of jobs to be able to say, this will provide for you, but to give you a launching pad to be able to move on to the type of positions that would add benefit to your family, but yeah. also contribute to the economy in a major way. It's huge. We're discussing the impact of uh, minimum wage and the government or local governments, even state governments, setting that wage uh, a la California that just uh, created a $15 a an hour um, minimum wage standard. So we're going to take a break, come back more with Kerry Wasden, a professor here at Brigham Young University in finance, and um, he's just teaching us all about uh, the economic impact of minimum wage. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back right here on BYU Radio.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us today, Kerry Wasden, who's a professor of finance and economics at BYU-Hawaii. He's on sabbatical here. He's actually just babysitting one of our producers, his son, Ben Wasden. But we are picking his brain about uh, minimum wage. So we, you know, places, uh, Seattle has created a minimum wage. Um, L.A. has now done it at a higher rate, a $15 in L.A. I, I want to help people, you know, be able to make it. Everybody wants to help that that part of uh, of society be able to make it. It just seems like, and you, we mentioned it during the break, the law of unintended consequences. You can't create a system that do, that isn't that's. You can't set one little kind of random rule or law that won't have unintended consequences in five or ten, fifteen years. Yeah, and we ignore that universally. It's one of the elements of chaos theory where you have the fluttering of a butterfly's wing in yeah. Africa and creates yeah. a hurricane in, in, in Indonesia. And we have experienced that any time the government gets involved in the markets. Now, I would not propose that the markets are efficient. Yeah. So the, the roots of minimum wage are 1349. King Edward III says, I'm going to create this ordinance of laborers and we're going to start setting prices for labor. Um, 1909, Winston Churchill steps in and says, the markets are not working. We've lost the ability of a laborer to negotiate with his boss and create a wage that works and creates value. Huh. Unions come into play and say, look, the, the companies are so large and their power is so great that they can't negotiate uh, effectively with laborers for their time. So unions took that role. Now unions have lost their power dramatically over the last five years. Uh, if you look at the Enrollments in unions, it's a, it's a falling rock. What's well, so weird because unions typically support Democrats and the, the presidency has been in the hands of the Democrats yeah. for eight years, six years, and yet labor unions are losing power? Well, look at where the jobs are going. The jobs are going to non-union states. Interesting. So there's a reason why we're making planes now in the south. Yeah. The reason why all the car manufacturing facilities are in the south. Because these are largely non-union states. Yeah, and you hear all these Republican governors that are running these states too. And it seems yeah. like – yeah. So it's interesting. What a shift. And so now the liberal governments, uh, certainly California would be right at the top of that list, are doing the water carrying for the unions. And they're saying we're going to be able to negotiate. We can't get the unions to negotiate because they've lost their power. So we're going to negotiate directly and we're going to create minimum wages. It used to be by the federal government. Right. Right? It was by the states. Now we're city by city. We're creating minimum wages. Think wow. about how that's going to create an economic environment where we start moving with our feet. We're saying it's too expensive to buy a burger in Sacramento. I'm yeah. going to go one city over. I mean, yeah. So does this equate to a $1 increase in your combo mill? Yeah. And, and in the case of uh, McDonald's where labor is 20 to 30 percent of your cost of your goods, um, that just went up by 50 percent. It's interesting. So that has a real impact on prices. So yeah, the next time you're getting a Happy Meal, you you might see you're that. Not as happy. That's right. <laughs> this isn't as happy as it used to be, and yet and yet you you want to keep you want the minimum wage to keep up with the times, don't you? I mean, it, it got it fell behind. Yeah, and there's a very legitimate discussion to be had about why this hasn't been connected to inflation when everything else in our economy yeah. largely. Why is. hasn't it been? Uh, largely political because we use it as a bit of a bully pulpit. 
to okay. beat people around yeah. and say, well, if you want me to raise the minimum wage, you got to give me these other things. Oh, interesting. <clears throat> and we're experiencing that right now in California. Yeah. Where we're raising the minimum wage and the same government that's raising the minimum wage and the expectation is the impact is going to be great on the production economy there in the movie business. The same government that's doing that is behind the scenes reducing their taxes so that they can come there and do their production in California at a lower cost. The reason is everybody's moving. They're going to yeah. they're going to Alberta to They're do going to Toronto. Toronto. They're going Toronto. yeah, they're going up north. Because the regulations are much lower, they have lower costs. But that doesn't make sense. So we lower the taxes, but then we demand that they pay $15 for everyone on the set, minimum wages or whatever. And yet that won't – well, I guess that will come out in other taxes. It doesn't make economic sense. Yeah. <clears throat> it makes great political sense yeah. because you've got the votes now for raising your minimum wage mm-hmm. and you've got the money for your campaign from the movie industry. Interesting. By lowering their taxes. And for, that's one example, right? That's just one. Why shouldn't the market – I mean some people would just argue, just let the market handle this. This should just go by – because I sit there and I look at – if I have a – uh, a, a woman that hasn't been in the workforce for years. She just she's now trying to get some credentials growing and just try to figure out what she wants to do. If she wants to work for me for seven dollars and twenty cents, why isn't that just okay? Now, even if you know, I might even pay more if you know if I had a single mom that wanted to do. It. But I, if I have a lady in my neighborhood that wants to work for seven twenty. Why, as an employer, should I not be able to just pay her seven twenty? Perhaps the best philosophical treatise on this was by Winston Churchill before the House of Commons in 1909. And I'm a Winston Churchill fan. Yeah. But it is really a remarkable presentation by him. And it really comes to grips with the anguish and the pain of the unemployed and those who cannot support themselves, cannot pay their bills. And his point was uh, anyone who is a member of the realm – should be able to cover their food. King Edward, I mean, his whole purpose behind his original minimum wage was the minimum wage should support your food, should be able to yeah. enable you to, to cover your expenses. Uh, we've lost sight of what necessities are. And so now a necessity is an iPhone. Yeah, should uh, pay my iPhone. <laughs> brand new pair of Air Jordans yeah. and all these other things. And we don't know what a necessity is anymore. And to calculate that is impossible. But right now, <clears throat> you can live on minimum wage. You'll be on food stamps. And or supplementary uh, income of some sort, and you can do really well. Hmm. Uh, not really well, like a hundred thousand dollars, really well, but you can support your family. Uh, so we've we've shifted the the burden away from the employer and moved it to the government. And what a lot of politicians are trying to do is say, if we increase the minimum wage, maybe we'll take that burden back off of government and put hmm. it back to the employer where it belongs. If you were to go into Walmart, seventy percent of their employees are on government assistance. Hmm. Reason is. They pay a really low wage. Yeah. So some of the policymakers are saying, well, if we just lift the minimum, maybe that takes them off the rolls of food stamp qualification and other things and puts it back to the corporations where it should be yeah. and legitimately should be. Well, that's a really interesting argument because the you know the Republicans are so known for you know talking about how many people are now on food stamps and all these government programs. And yet they'll fight adamantly against minimum wage, which is supposedly yeah. or has a chance of at least moving that needle. And there isn't a there isn't a party that doesn't speak out of both sides of their mouth. That's right. And there isn't a free market that will do this efficiently. So we need to have some sense of government involvement. Uh, we've created companies that are so large that their negotiating power with the individual labor is extreme. Is, so we've got to have something that sits in there. 
We're talking again with Kerry Wasden. Um, he's a professor here at Brigham Young University in finance and economics. He's talking and teaching us really about the impact, the cost of minimum wage. But then we hear unions are so frustrated, groups are so frustrated because so many jobs, manufacturing jobs are leaving the United States, going to other states. I'm assuming a manufacturing job isn't a minimum wage job. No. But it's probably also – or has it not been – has government been so involved that it's driven prices up so companies are taking them out of the country? And the largest component of the reason why people leave the country is not wage because the U.S. is still fairly low wage rate okay. country and we're really effective and productive. Yeah. So our productivity is high. And besides that, shipping is really expensive. Yeah. So, if I'm gonna, so why are they leaving? What we're doing when we're shipping jobs to or manufacturing to China, we're sending them the natural resources. They're producing the product and sending it back. So we've got a fairly high bar to cover to be able to make that job worth sending abroad. Right. And what we're experiencing in the last three years is a movement of those same manufacturing opportunities back to the United States. They're coming back. Yeah. And that's just because of natural resources. Uh, natural resource prices, shipping prices, as oil prices go up, yeah. shipping costs go up as well. But also just the productivity, the logistics and productivity, and being able to stand over the top of your manufacturing facility and say, "Hey, what's going on?" Yeah, we probably thought there was a utopia sending it away for half price, but then we didn't yeah. necessarily get what we wanted. The and making quality. company pens and making silly trinkets and things—that's really yeah. easy. Now, more and more, China is becoming a real value-added manufacturer, and they're doing the creativity work over there as well. Yeah. And that should have us really worried yeah. because previously we were doing the creative work here and just getting it manufactured over there. And now the creative work, the innovation is taking place over there as well, and we're scratching our heads thinking maybe it wasn't so good to send our weapons manufacturing over <laughs> to the enemy. <laughs> It's it's really man. They make a really nice F sixteen. <laughs> Didn't <laughs> we used to, to make F sixteen? It's kind of scary, isn't it? They could pirate if they can pirate a movie video. They could probably eventually pirate an F sixteen, which they're doing. <laughs> scary. Um, so in the end, though, Kerry, you we we want we want to be fair. You want to give everyone, as Churchill said, the ability to at least pay for their own meals and have their own, and that might impact or decrease some of the government subsidies that are needed. Yet we also want to incentivize people to move on from minimum wage so that this isn't just where you stay. You do. And we have to get beyond the point where you're treating the symptoms instead of the disease. Yeah. The disease is we have phenomenal jobs that are not being filled by U.S. people. We're having to bring people in from abroad. The disease is we're not training our people to be able to fill those jobs. Yeah. So we need to use the minimum wage as a tool to allow people to have a little bit of a runway, mm -hmm. to get their education, to get the skills necessary so that they can then leap forward into those jobs that we're already paying very high rates for, for international laborers to come in and do. So if we, if we over-incentivize minimum wage – without trying to create something that moves them into the into the better jobs that no one's really going for right now, we've we've done a disservice. We're creating a parking lot. That's true. A we're, huge parking lot. Where we say it's no longer painful you to, for you to stay in this job. You now have a living wage flipping burgers. So yeah. I'm going to stay. So we're importing the people to flip burgers and we're importing them to have the good jobs. <laughs> That's right. So where in the heck are the Americans? <laughs> where are we doing – 
I mean, where are we strong? You always hear about the shrinking middle class. Is there a shrinking middle class? Does it exist? What does that mean when they're always saying that? That's an illusion. Okay. Uh, what we really have is a shrinking population. And when you have a shrinking population, you're obviously going to have a shrinking middle class because yeah. they're part of the population. It's very true, though, that those of us who are around our age have had stagnant wages for the last 15 years. Hmm. And so we have not even kept up with inflation. It's not just that the middle – that the low-income people have not kept up with inflation. Nobody has. Yeah. And so we have to really address the issues of why aren't we? What are we doing as an economy – to be stagnating. You can't stagnate very long while the rest of the world is growing right. without finding yourself behind. What are we doing? What would you say as an economist? Well, there's a, there's a series of initiatives that you can pursue that would lead you to a faster growth economy. Number one is you've got to keep the high-value-added jobs here. Mm-hmm. And we're increasingly moving them abroad, not just the cheap manufacturing stuff. We're moving high-value-added services to India. Yeah, we're moving high-value-added products and services to China. My daughter was in the hospital um, with a very serious problem, and she had an X-ray every day. That X-ray was sent to India every night. It was read by a radiologist, and the radiologist report was emailed back to them for the morning. So yeah. that when they have grand rounds, they'd walk around and talk about the radiology report. From Why are we India. doing that? Yeah. Why are we allowing all of our high-value-added jobs to be done so easily and so, so much more cheaply abroad? It's huge. There's a total mismatch in the value price proposition of what labor's worth. So, uh, if you had to give us a kind of a closing idea, what should what should we all be thinking, and and even telling our kids, teaching our kids, and worrying about? I mean, and doing as as a business owner when it comes to minimum wage, what would you suggest our approach be? It's it's completely the marshmallow story. Yeah. Can you put off consumption today to invest in yourself? We need to get our kids to stop thinking about what they can do today and saying, I need you to invest. First of all, invest in yourself. It's the best investment you'll ever make. Education, Education skill, skill building. Set. We don't all need to go to college and be PhDs. Thank goodness. Thank heavens. <laughs> <laughs> but we do need to gain, gain some skills, life skills, that will be able to get us into a earning position so we yeah. can support ourselves. Well, we just heard a, a, one of our guests yesterday talking – or a few days ago talking about video gaming. I mean – those guys are making an average starting income at $65,000 in designing video games. Yep. And that's just the kid probably that loved video games and learned how to do it. And no college required. Yeah. And sometimes no high school required. And they're hiring them because they have skills. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing world where we don't need the certificate anymore. So invest. Invest in <clears throat> yourself. Um, invest in skills. Play for the long term. Delay gratification. Don't. You don't have to have everything because you need it right now. Sounds a lot like your grandma, doesn't it? Totally. <laughs> Holy cow. We just channeled Mammy. <laughs> That's good stuff. Well, Kerry, we appreciate you. Again, Kerry Wasden here from Brigham Young University, Hawaii, by the way. In a few months, you're going – November, you're going back to Hawaii. How sorry for you. Yes. In November, you've got to go back. <laughs> what a torture. Um, and he's got a great kid, Ben. He really is a great kid. You can just tell – just an incredible spirit. Kerry, thanks, my friend. Thank you. You made minimum wage seem uh, palatable. Good stuff. We're going to take a break, come back, do a quick review uh, of some more headlines, and just figure out uh, our take on minimum wage. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, Minimum Wage, it's such an interesting, interesting thing. Um, I, t- I was talking earlier about how my son really wants to come work for me and basically vacuum. He's going to be my official vacuumer at my office, and we want to just teach him to work. But he, before we could get this thing going, he wanted to know what he's going to be making. And I'm like, well, okay, what are you bringing to the what do you bring into the game? Well, I'm going to work and uh, I'll work and I'll show up and work. And I think, okay, that's great. So I, I guess I'll pay you. I was thinking six bucks. He's 14. He's 14 years old. I'll pay you six bucks. And he's like, well, isn't minimum wage like seven twenty? And I think I'm like, well, yeah, but I think that has an age on it. Like, isn't that for 16 year olds or whatever? I don't know. Is it? Because I'm working in that way. I don't know. It's There's an age limit. Yeah, child labor laws. I mean, child labor laws are a lot cheaper. I like, should just make give you a Twinkie. It's different when it's a family, though. Yeah. You know, because th- th- there is yeah. the implied idea that you're not going to work him to the bone. And- oh, p- please. Sure, I will. The problem is he won't be worked to the bone. <laughs> I will try to work him to the bone. Really? But he'll, he wants- he'll quit before then? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I had I had one of my kids. Oh, it was maddening because you're supposed to post the the laws in your office for minimum wage. And when one of my kids was vacuuming for about five dollars an hour, <laughs> wait he, a second, he, he's like, "What the, huh. Dad? This says seven twenty. I'm supposed to call someone if there's a problem." <laughs> I'm like, "You're not supposed to see that. Just keep vacuuming." <laughs> But they, it's how do you teach these kids? Well, you can call tell your kids it's their allowance. Yeah, you know what I mean. I do. Yeah, and if you call it an allowance, then you you, you probably sidestep any of these. No, I pulled, labor laws. I just pulled out the old dad thing. Well, okay, why don't I just do this? I'm just going to send you an invoice. <laughs> do that for everything you cost me, <laughs> and then I'll pay you seven twenty. Yeah, and you just pay me back. But you may owe me. I've had this discussion with my parents too. Everybody's done that, and I went. Right. We'll go with your plan. You know, it works better. You know, five's not bad. Five's not, not bad. bad. <laughs> well, spending money, I'm good. Isn't that? Can I use the car tonight? But who hasn't <laughs> been through that experience working for the dad? My mom used to pay us for weeds, mm. you know, and then she realized, like, like she was paying us by the pound of weeds. It wasn't by the pound, but it was by weight. Just fill the bucket up. And what I learned very quickly is if you just grab a big clump of weeds – with like a huge dirt clod on it, whatever you call it. Yeah. Get about five of those so they're really tall. It looks like it's filled the bucket and it weighs a ton. Right. And I really only weeded about, you know, and she's just gonna five by five it. inches. She's just going to look and go, okay. Mm-hmm. She's not going to dig down and find out that it's all dirt. We've all worked the system. Right. I think the system is there to be worked at times. That's why God gave us a system <laughs> to work. But it, like you just learn to do it, but then you've got a conscience, and then you've got to figure out yeah. what's a real day's work and conscience, yeah. conscience, conscience. One of my first jobs, one of the greatest jobs of all time, was at a golf course. It was the greatest job. I was fifteen because I used to ride my bike there. I'd get up every day at four forty, like I do today. Mm. Actually, it's probably like five. Go to work, and um, I would walk around a golf course all day doing jobs. And push, whatever they needed, whatever they needed, pushing mowers, you know, raking out sand traps. It was a great gig, and you'd be done by about three, and then you'd get a golf for free once a week, huh. and you'd make your five dollars an hour or whatever it was back then. 
And um, but even that, I learned. You know, if you walk slow, <laughs> you can look busy you without look actually. Busy. Yeah, yeah. And that's how I got through wind sprints in little league football. Is that how you? Do yeah, it? I looked like I was running. Yeah. I really wasn't. You just fake it. It was more of a fast walk. But you had to push your mower like miles. Right. So you know, and, and that, you had to do it in a specific way because yeah. they wanted to look like someone was right, but, and, caring yeah. about the job here. And by about twelve thirty, you're like, okay, it could take me. I don't know, maybe it'll take two and a half hours to walk this mower back. <laughs> but I'll just <laughs> mow around trees all the way back. Okay, they won't know. But they'd appreciate the around the tree job that you did as you yeah. mowed the lawn and made sure everything was uh, perfectly the same <laughs> level, so the golf ball would roll. See. See, you're doing a, a service as you wasted time. And I don't back then I don't remember worrying about minimum wage. Did you care? No. I got free golfing on Thursdays. Right. And I was riding my bike home. I wasn't paying for gas. And you, you were able to fill your summer. Yeah. Which can be kind of boring for a kid. Mm-hmm. And I learned how to mess with the boss. And your parents were fine with it because you were busy and, and out they of, didn't have to yeah. worry about you. See, so that's Really, why? So when I think of minimum wage, I'm thinking of these kids. But the problem is that's not it. You've got a, a single mother from another country that's in our country trying to make a living and actually pay for three kids with her minimum wage. So it's not some boy on a golf course that's going to get free golfing. Yeah. It's really – or it's not my son that is going to learn how to work. This is really about feeding a family. Scary. There you have it. Minimum wage, my folks, my friends. We're out of here. Hour number one. It's in the can. Thanks for joining us. We'll take a break. More next hour right here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. We do what we can on this program. To help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. Today will be uh, today we're going to talk about life when it comes to your hobbies. Does your spouse have a hobby that is sucking the life out of your marriage? Cleaning the house. That's a hobby. Oh wait, never mind. Wow. <laughs> I'm talking golfing. Oh right, right, yeah. I have a lot of clients that their Scrap, wife scrapbooking. hates the, scrapbooking. There's people that go over the top of that. Uh, My James, sister-in-law has a room of the house, her scrapbooking room. Really? Her craft she room. She has a whole craft room. Yes. Have you seen James, what he's been into lately? He got one of the, those- The um, exotic fedoras he keeps wearing? Yeah. Wow. But they're all bedazzled. Yeah. He, he, for his marriage, his wedding, <laughs> he got a bedazzler, a bedazzle gun. Yeah. And he's been putting gems and- Rhinestones. Rhinestones on everything. Yep. Oh. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, you well, can spruce up almost anything just in like five seconds. With just a bedazzler. Yeah, bedazzle. It's weird though because I don't. I think you're putting too many on. Mm. Like 
I think you're over bedazzling. I don't that's think such that's possible to over bedazzle anything. Well, if you can't sit down because you've got too many rhinestones on your pants, then you've over bedazzled. And like you the other day, I heard you walking down the hall and it kind of sounded like corduroy. Yeah. But it was more like a really high grit sandpaper. Like or a really grit. high grit sandpaper. <laughs> yeah. It was weird. And then I saw you and it was just and then there was the right behind you that was like this wake of just glass crystals. Isn't that cool though? Doesn't doesn't have a, that have a cool effect? Mm. Just how just walking behind, you're walking along and then behind you there are all these crystals on the ground. No, it's, it's really weird. cool. It's, it's, it's really cool. It's it's starting to mess with the vacuums. Oh. The janitorial staffs. Oh, they were so mad. Did you notice that? Yeah. yeah. They were like taking their vacuums apart. Bedazzle. So today we'll be talking about hobbies and how to maybe embrace your spouse's hobby, maybe also how to tone it down. I mean, just the jewel costs for the Birdsall family must be thousands of dollars a month. You have to let your spouse have their hobby. But at the same time, they need to have a limit as to how much they participate and try to be, you know... You can have it's like you can have friends, but you can't hang out with them every single night. Right, if you're married because you have this other person who you're trying to share your life with, and if you don't actually share your life with them, they may have an issue with that. Well, and what happens when your husband's spending forty dollars a day golfing, and that's a discount, right? Forty bucks a day, two hundred bucks a week, eight hundred bucks a month, golfing. I, I, I did eight, I golfed 18 holes once. Like That was a long time. That was a long time. Yeah. I can't put that much time into this. Yeah. So I haven't golfed since. So we'll be talking. For, for hunting deer and gluing sparkles. Embracing your spouse's hobbies. Now, if you take your spouse with you, that kind of alleviates the problem. Yeah. But that might be why you go do what you do is to get away from your what? spouse. What? What do you mean by that? So I was just kind of. Talking out loud, thinking out loud. Letting the thought sort of go to its natural end point You know point what you there, could so do? Sorry you, about that. You could hire your, your spouse. Mm, the caddy? To be your caddy, but then you'd have to pay minimum wage. I do know a couple that live near me that the wife likes to drive the cart. I do too. Well, I, I think I, I, they'd like to drive the cart once. No, like all I mean, the time. <laughs> really? Yeah, she just enjoys driving the cart. So he goes and golfs and she drives him around. Maybe just to buy her a cart. It works for them. That's great. Yeah. It's great. They spend time together. He I gets a, mad. I have a friend that goes fishing every, uh, not every night, but many times a week, three times a week maybe. But he goes fishing at about 7 o'clock at night until mm-hmm. about 2 in the morning. Okay. That could be some it's a really good, relationship it's a really stress. Good, and that creates a lot of stress. Yeah. And she doesn't even like fish. No. Might need to rein that in a little bit. She thinks fish tastes too fishy. I, I'm of the same opinion. You like, don't, I don't mind if my wife cooks fish. I just yeah. don't want to smell it. And sometimes when you cook fish, it kind of hangs around. Oh, <laughs> for <laughs> it's sure. Kind of gross. <laughs> for sure. So we'll be getting into hobbies in just a bit. Uh, but first, let's let's get to some, some first, headlines here. First off, it's National Running Day. Oh, excellent. So uh, if you have a passion for running, you're supposed to share that passion with others. I They don't. will look at you weird because... I don't know. I don't like I running. Would. I like watching running. It's fantastic. They're talking about spreading the running bug to a friend. Really? Sign up for a race or set a new goal. Well, 
Yeah. Okay. And I go, no, thank you. But congratulations on your hobby. Yeah, that's a great hobby. Very healthy. Yeah. I'm just not really built for running. No, I'm not either. I'm built for donuts. <laughs> donuts. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've know- you've seen this story over in China. They've had a ship that capsized. No, I didn't hear. Uh, just over 500 people were on the boat. They feel they've rescued about 14, I believe. Oh, no way. The rest Out of 500? Are, the rest are, are, are missing. They've... They have recovered some victims oh, of it. The survivors have become less and less likely. Chinese media outlets are being told to keep reporters away from the scene and to use state-issued materials when reporting on this story. They're also being blocked from take, talking to the families. The ship's name is the Eastern Star. It was the most, it's the most censored term on the Chinese social network Weibo. Oh, really? Which is kind of like their Facebook, Twitter type of a social media. Yeah. Uh, so any question that has Eastern Star in it is is censored. Any questions about the captain? Um, also, uh, anything about the oh about the captain ignoring bad weather reports? That also is being deleted from their social media. Oh no! Now uh, again, eighteen people have been confirmed dead. Fourteen others rescued in the search for survivors. Um, in this trap capsized cruise ship on this uh, this river in China, the uh, transportation minister says thousands of rescue workers are in a race against time to find survivors. Um, Five hundred fifty six people is the the uh, a number they're giving as how many people were on the boat. Hmm. The captain survived and he was immediately arrested and is being questioned as to his uh, his uh, role in what happened. The uh, let's see, the rescuers worked overnight tried to locate survivors. The upturned hull. Uh, while divers searched and provided breathing apparatus to those who were found alive inside. The captain and the chief engineer are among those who survived. They were taken into custody. The two claimed the boat was caught in a cyclone when it went down. Oh, boy. So that'll continue, but the information, we're not sure, is there. tragedy. Really controlling it over there. An estimated 1.5 million or 13% of people dropped off the health insurance coverage rolls this year because they failed to pay for the policies they selected on the Affordable Care Act marketplace. Mm. So they got their insurance. They did what they were supposed to. And then they didn't pay for it. And then they fell off the rolls because you got to pay for Obama it. I thought Obama was paying for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for that excuse. Send the bill to Barack. So people were not. The uh, Obama administration announced 10.2 million people were enrolled as of March 31st, down from 11.7 million who signed up for the coverage through the federal and state marketplaces earlier this year. Huh. So just interesting how. Well, the Supreme Court's about to rule on. The legality of all of those uh, um, state marketplaces. State marketplaces. Yeah, there's some issues with that. So maybe still. more will be falling <laughs> we'll off. We'll see. Bobby Jindal, governor of Louisiana, Bobby Jindal is slated to announce his presidential plans <gasps> June 24th. In. There this we go. All. So there's it's getting that. exciting. If he jumps in, he'll be the tenth Republican. Tenth. Ooh, three uh, three short of a baker's dozen. There you go. Uh, Michael Bloomberg could be uh, look, thinking about challenging Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomina- nomination. Holy cow. The former New York City mayor, Bloomberg, hasn't announced his bid, but sources tell the New York Post that a group of unnamed New York Democrats want him to run. They think that uh, Clinton's lead among Democrats is because of the lack of a credible challenger. See, this is the test balloon. So they're all going to. So do a lot of people get excited about Bloomberg running? Boy, that would be really interesting. I don't know. Bloomberg and then Trump. <laughs> and, and I just found this one. That's crazy. A new CNN poll has found that Americans once again have a favorable opinion of George W. Bush. Oh, he's back in favor. 
more uh, more favorable, favorable, in fact, than current President Obama. Politico notes that the poll released Wednesday marks the first time Americans have been this positive uh, on George W. Bush since April of 2005. Hmm. Uh, 52% of respondents say they viewed him, uh, Bush, favorably compared to 49% for Obama. But that tends to happen as you get further and further away from a presidency. People like the person more and more. Well, so the secret, if anybody wants to know the secret, James, do you want to know the secret? Yep, I sure do. The secret is you say nothing. You go away, you stay out of the spotlight, you say nothing. You paint. You paint. Because he's painting. And averagely. Yeah. Which yeah. is under word, but it's You become an average painter, <laughs> you stay out of the spotlight, you say nothing, and eventually you'll skyrocket in popularity. Just if you wanted to know that, James. And and you show up to a commencement addresses and talk about how you were a C student. Yeah. And then you re- instantly relate to the vast majority of people in front of you. And everyone's like, you are so cool. Really like me? Awesome. I can be president. I mean, that really is an amazing study considering how everybody keeps bringing up like the whole Jeb Bush, did you agree with your brother's policy decisions about going into Iraq? That's still one of the big questions they're asking all of these Republicans is, would, knowing what you know now, would you do the same thing and go into the war? Which is, you know, all about – George Bush, but yeah. people seem to be liking him again. Short memory span. Also, though, in the news, um, Barack Obama's uh, likability is dropping too. People aren't quite as into him as they used to be. Forty nine percent. Yeah, he's but he he's was, right around there. He was, he was really, really low, low and he's, he, he's brought it up a little bit, and then it fell down again. Yeah, but that that happens with the president because he's out there every day saying things, and then there's people that like what he yeah. says, people that don't like what he says. So imagine how much we'll like him in a few years when he hasn't talked for right. six years. That's why Hillary's gone quiet to keep her likability. You so. can't attack her; she says nothing. I know nothing, and, and she has no honest competitor. She has Bernie Sanders, but. Yeah. I don't think people really see him as a uh, as Wait a till Bloomberg gets in there. He's I think got Bloomberg billions. Bloomberg can have the money, his own money plus his supporters. The mere fact that he's, that's even being floated, that tells you Hillary's had a bad week or two or three. Some would say months. Could be. Good times. Interesting news. Well done. Again, our prayers go out to China. That's just tragic. Uh, it's a big deal. We are going to take a break. When we come back, I, I'm going to do a coach's corner, and we're going to get in-depth into hobbies. Are your hobbies uh, impacting your marriage? Are your spouse's hobbies starting to just suck the life out of you? You're sick of their friends. Oh, I hear about your friend one more time. Their passions. How do you uh, build a relationship And, you know, your own interests, your passions, your hobbies. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be talking about all of that after the break. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Is your spouse, uh, you know, really active in some sport, some hobby, whatever it is, and you feel like it's taking them away from you and your marriage? 
hobbies, they really can, uh, you know, be beneficial and help us to feel young and vibrant, to connect to our passions. It might even keep us thinking uh, in a healthier way. But sometimes they also can end up stealing your time, your attention, your focus. Many times I'll see couples that'll come in and see me and they'll, they'll talk about how they have fallen out of love. And every time I hear a couple arguing that they have fallen out of love, I, I usually think, well, okay, they probably have actually fallen into something else. I'm not sure I believe that people fall out of love. I think they just fall into a passion somewhere else, doing something else, and it's really simple to do. I mean, imagine when you're first married, you're first in love, life is life is great, tons of chemistry, everything about your spouse you think is cute, it's fantastic, it's wonderful. And meanwhile, um, it, it was easy too, right? Love was easy when you're first in love. It gets harder as time goes on. You, uh, you know, life gets more stressful, expenses go up, more children maybe, but these problems end up having to be dealt with. We have to learn to communicate. So as the relationship gets more complicated, many of us might actually turn away from the relationship to a hobby, to something else where we can escape, where we can get away from the 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 difficulty and i see it all the time i had a client that just started riding um bicycles and became a really good cyclist started joining teams started traveling with his team every saturday and then he'd have to train for hours and it became an obsession now you would think it would be wonderful because he's he's losing weight he's staying in shape he has tons of passion he's excited about something except for the fact that he was no longer as active in parenting. He was no longer there for dates. And he could only talk about his hobby. He couldn't relate to his family. He couldn't relate to other things. So hobbies, do they get in the way of you and your marriage? And if so, is it starting to to really frustrate you? One of the reasons why I've um, I wanted to talk about this today is because I have seen marriages die be simply because of one partner's hobby. And um, I want to give you some tools, some ideas today on how to go about combating your partner's hobby. I mean, you can hate it all you want, but for some reason, they're doing it. They're choosing it. And there, there's obviously power if we could actually connect on the hobby. So I would suggest one of the greatest goals you could have in a marriage is some shared hobbies, some things that you love to do together. When my wife and I were first married, we played tennis a lot all through high school. We played tennis. We don't ever make time for tennis anymore. And yet it was something that we used to connect on. It was something that used to keep us uh, motivated. It was something that used to keep us active and together. And yet we don't even do it. So instead of letting these hobbies divide us, and instead of my wife being frustrated by me liking, you know, whatever Netflix, or me frustrated by her because she always wants to go on walks, how can we go find kind of the the common ground, the shared ground when it comes to our hobbies? One of the first rules I'm going to give you is we need to look at the distraction um, and find out what is so attractive about it. Find the attraction in your partner's distraction. 
one of the number one ways I've ever found to um, to probably value something you don't necessarily like just inherently is to understand it better. Why would your husband love fishing five hours a night until midnight or one or two in the morning? Why would they like that? That's crazy. You can hate it all you want or you can go try to just have a conversation and understand what is it about fishing that is so valuable for you? Why are you so excited? You might even want to go with them and figure out what is it about this And I bet you the more information you gather, don't just make it about fishing. What is it about standing in a river? And you might be able to see maybe the beauty of the river. You might be able to see that your your husband is motivated by the challenge of trying to find the fish, of trying to choose the right bait or lure, or trying to do the right technique with a fly rod, or trying to... um, just just that moment of when the the fish is uh, the fish hits and they get a reel it in what is it that motivates your spouse to be so into doing family history or genealogy or writing a, uh you know writing a book what is it about what they're doing because you don't have to love what they're doing but if they're going to be spending a lot of time and energy doing it you really might want to understand it and I found the more I understand what my wife is doing, the more I uh, I appreciate it. My wife has started a blog that um, it's a really uh, – it's an interesting thing because it takes time. And I personally would love her writing other things for me and with me. And yet the blog um, I'm noticing is being used by my wife to create a catharsis where she can deal with some of her other stresses of life. Now, when I don't read the blog, when I'm not up to date on the blog and I and I haven't cared about the blog, then to me it's just an annoyance. But when I understand the catharsis and I can see how much my wife is being able to be healed by writing her blog, then it makes me feel like, okay, I can tolerate this. This is good. So one of the first things I would say about your spouse's hobby, even if it irritates you <laughs> to no end, Try to understand where it's coming from. They're not doing it to just hate you. They have a passion. They're going through something maybe in their life where they're trying to find a healthy way to handle it. So help them handle it. Now, if you are the one with a hobby that's taking a lot of time and energy, you got to be real. Is it is it a hobby that's impacting? Is it impeding a healthy relationship? Are you doing it too much? of divorces are filed by women. And so when they come into my office, invariably, they're kind of like done. They've been trying to work on this marriage for years. And a lot of times the guys are like, what? It's not a big deal. Well, it is a big deal because you golf three times a week. And then you tell us we don't have money to go on a vacation, but you're paying $800 a month golfing. It's impacting us. And your friends are driving me crazy when it comes to this. So also you need to ask yourself, is your hobby impeding? Is it impacting? What would, if I took your hobby and presented the data about how much time you spend coaching your kids' sports, is it impeding on a healthy marriage? 
would nine out of ten dentists agree <laughs> that it is impacting a healthy marriage? I want you to think about that because to just go be actively involved in your passion, it does not equate to a happy marriage. So don't assume just because you are passionate and loving your passion, don't assume your marriage is going to work or it's even going to be tolerated. If you want your marriage to work, you're going to need to make your marriage your passion. You're going to need to make your marriage your hobby. Well, marriages shouldn't be that difficult. Marriage should be more natural. I hear people tell me that all the time. And every time they tell me that, I think, well, okay, more natural like childbirth? Yeah, okay. Yeah, nothing more natural than childbirth. But not easy. And not always so natural. Really painful. If you want your marriage to work, then we want to make the marriage part of the hobby. We might also want to understand why our partner does what they do and don't just take offense and be offended by it. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue this discussion and give you more tools for how to negotiate your partner's hobbies, how to maybe set some boundaries, how to set some limits, and maybe even more importantly, how to find a shared hobby. That's the moneymaker right there. If you could find something that you both love to do, you could still have your own hobbies, and we could do one together. More coming up next on The Coach's Corner on Hobbies and Your Marriage. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. To the Matt Townsend Show. Hobbies, are they taking over your relationship? Are you losing your spouse to a hobby, to a golf game maybe, to coaching? I have a lot of friends who are dads that are coaches of their kids' sports. And holy cow, their marriages take a back seat. Now, you know what? That's fine because we're doing it for the kids, right? Well, sure, until our marriage is done. So are you giving up your marriage for a hobby? Usually when I see that that's happening, I, you know, uh, somebody that's seriously avoiding being a partner by going cycling and being by themselves or, um, you know, golfing, even if they golf by themselves, you might notice that, that they're actually just using golfing, not just because it's a passion, but because it's, it's an excellent mechanism to medicate or to avoid. Life is stressful for a lot of people right now, and the only way that they can unwind would be maybe, you know, doing illegal drugs or drinking or unwinding that way, and they don't want to maybe do that. So a healthier way to unwind, let's just go get a hobby and spend a lot of time and effort because you can't be mad if I want to exercise every day, right? But then my exercise turns into three hours every night so that I can run a marathon or so that I can ride a bike. Now, again, none of these things in and of themselves, they're not bad things. But if they're not done in moderation, then guess what happens? Things are going to suffer. If you're spending three hours a night on your hobby, you're not spending three hours a night on your family 
or on your finances or on your yard or on your marriage. Something's going to suffer. So we've got to find a way to make the marriage maybe a hobby, something we're really interested in, passionate about, that we're trying to grow. The principle overall would be moderation. But if it's a distraction, I teach in my program, it doesn't matter why you're distracted. You're still distracted. And if you're distracted, your time, your attention, your mind space is not going to what it needs to be going to. Now, I get it. If you're having a midlife crisis, being able to run a marathon or a triathlon is incredible. But maybe you could run it with your spouse. Ah, no, they don't like that. And you need to be careful, spouses, because if you quickly just choose to not be involved in what your partner is doing, if you're just choosing because I don't like to fish, I get it. However, if they're going to fish and you're not going, there's some valuable time that might be lost there. So be careful what you uh, are willing to do and what you're not willing to do. A lot of us just really easily say no to our spouses. When we're dating somebody, we're like, oh, fishing, I love it. Let's go fishing. You'll try anything. But when you're married, like, nah, I'll just stay here and watch a bachelor. One of the rules I would say is let's try everything. Let's just try it. Let's not even just try it once. Let's try fishing three times. Let's try running with our spouse if they really are into running. Let's try it three times. Let's try stuff. Let's not just say no. Let's try it. Let's also remember, try to figure out why is your spouse so passionate about what they're passionate about? Why are they so into that? Make sure your hobbies are healthy is another little rule for you. Healthy hobbies are the hobbies that add to our lives instead of distracting from our lives. A healthy hobby is a hobby that makes our life more complete. It involves us with more people. You know, it, it creates more opportunities. It allows more of us to come out in life, more of our creative side, our physical side, our social side, our emotional side, our spiritual side. A healthy hobby would allow all of that. A healthy hobby wouldn't be at the expense of your spirituality. You know, you shouldn't have to give up attending church if you like going to church just to do your hobby. You shouldn't have to give up being a parent just to go do your hobby. So evaluate your hobbies. Are they healthy? What most people end up not liking about their spouse is when the hobby takes the spouse and puts them out of balance. And a healthy hobby shouldn't take you out of balance. I mean, it might situationally here and there, but it shouldn't take you out of balance every day. It shouldn't mean that we go to bed separately. Well, yeah, I just got to stay up to finish my train. (laughs) Okay. Again, couples need to be going to bed at the same time if they can, if it's possible. I know it's hard. Some job situations don't allow it, but you at least need to have some time together. And you might want to also make sure that you're not, you know, your hobby's not putting you in weird situations where you're now all of a sudden on a team of runners and you're the only guy and there's six females and you're learning all about their their life situations and you're becoming their counselor. I've heard of that going on. So make sure your hobbies are healthy. Find the joy in their joy, another rule for you. Can you 
really enjoy – I mean, you love watching your little kid out there chasing the ball, kicking a soccer goal. You love that. That is so motivating. Can you find that same excitement in your spouse as they're learning piano and going to a piano recital? And they're the only 45-year-old mother in the room with the other 12-year-old kids at the recital. Can you make a big deal about that? Do you recognize what your spouse's strengths are? And if I were you, I'd get really good at talking about them. One of the greatest uh, – I had a lady yesterday ask me a question and it turned into I think just a really great idea about how you know you're loved. She says, how am I supposed to show my partner that I really think he's great if he won't believe when I tell him he's great? And I just thought about it for a minute and I thought maybe what you need to do is just tell everyone else around you how great he is. So everyone else around him treats him differently and they tell him what you're saying about him. A lot of times we can't get our spouses to believe what we actually say to them. But when we say it to everyone else and other people tell your spouse, they might start to believe it. So if you're proud of your spouse running a marathon, if you're proud of them, you know, painting that painting, put that painting up at your office. Oh, but what if it's not good enough? Who cares? Find the joy that they felt in painting the painting. And reassure them. Get that out there, right? Uh, try to figure out how they're motivated by it and try to, uh, to help your, your spouse maximize their talents. One of the reasons hobbies, I think, are so powerful is because it should be strengthening our strengths and our talents, our gifts, our abilities. So you should be able to find joy just having your spouse maximize their talent. What if their talent is cooking? You might always be mad because all they're ever doing is cooking. But see their cooking skills as a hobby, as a talent. And find joy in it. Man, go have a great meal. When people are maximizing their talents and their gifts, it's pretty powerful. Another rule for you just to think of is equal time. If you're going to give one hour of exercise with your bicycling team, you might want to make sure you give equal time to your parenting roles and your spouse roles. Equal time. Another great way to do that is date nights. If you can find a hobby you can do together, and if you want to know a hobby you could do together, go back to something you used to do many, many years ago when you were dating. What were the most natural types of dates you'd go on with your spouse? It's, uh, it's pretty it's, – it really is. It's very interesting what they can um, do for us if we just could go back to our good memories and think what we, where we used to spend our time together. Find something we can do together. Try everything. And again, I'm a big believer. Let's try everything three times. Well, I hate riding bikes. Well, try it for a month. Going on bike rides with your spouse. Stephen Covey had one of the greatest uh, little things he'd do every night. He had a little trail motorcycle that was just a little – I don't even know what uh, speed it was or what what size the engine was. But he he and his wife every night would get on that little bike and they would just go for a little ride just around the neighborhood wasn't fast. It wasn't loud. But he said it allowed us time to be close to each other and we had to talk right in each other's ear because you're on the trail bike. And that's where they'd go have their biggest conversations. Sometimes they'd go up and park and talk and sometimes they would just ride. And Stephen and his wife, that's just how they found time to be with each other. In the end, folks, I don't think your spouse is mad that you have a hobby. They might just be mad that they're not part of your life. So if you're going to have a hobby, that's fine. 
but make sure your spouse still is a part of your life. And might, you might want to find out what that means to them. Does that mean we spend time together? Does that mean we touch more? Does that mean we talk? Because pretty much, I'll guarantee you, if you're talking and touching and having time with each other and you're positive, your spouse will love whatever you're doing. But when those other things are not there and you're not in balance and not moderating it, you're going to have problems. That's the Coach's Corner, my friends. Hobbies, they don't have to destroy you. They can actually grow your marriage. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll give you some more ideas right here on BYU Radio. everybody to the Matt Townsend show that is a song that you better get ready for live or survive is the name of this song and there's some uh, BYU students that are doing whatever they can to uh, get this in the next Hunger Games come on Hollywood pay attention it's a really cool uh, I think opportunity for the band Tren Trent is a band made up of four partners, Taylor Miranda, Richard Williams, Elizabeth Smith, and Nate Young. Nate's not here today. He's probably got, you know, school. Uh, but uh, Taylor Miranda works at BYU Radio yes, Broadcasting. I do. do you still? And I, I know you're so popular, you're out singing everywhere. Oh, yeah. I just came back to BYU Radio. I was in California for a year. That's it. But I'm back. But she's got a great voice, as does the rest of the group. Guys, you're trying to catch Hollywood's attention by making a really awesome song. Then you're getting a lot of people to view it on the internet. This is a this is a pretty popular, tried and tested marketing method because now they're using more YouTubers than ever. And so is that your goal? Just make a beautiful song and get Hollywood to pay attention. That's exactly what our goal is. As you're doing it. You're up to 100,000 views, for heaven's sakes, aren't you? Yeah, we're really stoked. None of us really had this a crazy fan base before, and to have a video that has over 100,000 views is crazy to all of us. We're really excited. It's really cool because other groups like Piano Guys, the listeners may be familiar with, Devin Supertramp, that's the guy that has the rope swing from one of the arches in southern Utah. It's crazy. In fact, he had a video where... A boyfriend pushed his girlfriend off of an arch. Anyway, um, she survived. She was attached to a bungee cord or something. But these YouTubers go out. They get a big following. And then uh, it kind of drives other careers. And now Hollywood's paying attention. All the big motor companies. Ford's done commercials with Devin Supertramp. So now is this – let me get this straight though. Uh, you want this to be in the next, uh, the next uh, Hunger Games series the next Hunger Games movie, mm-hmm. and yet the Hunger Games executives don't know you're out there. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Maybe they do now. We're waiting for them to call us any day. But this is cool. <laughs> this is cool. So who, who came up with the idea? We, we So Taylor and I and Richard, we were all in a songwriting class together last year, and the assignment was to they, – they handed us our – our, our, t- our professor handed us um, just movies 
out of the name of a hat that were coming out and um Taylor and I got Hunger Games and so we wrote the song for it and our professor was really encouraging and he was like wow I wish I had connections to Lionsgate so I could oh that'd be cool help you submit this and then Taylor's the big dreamer and was like well yeah why don't we actually get it to Lionsgate yeah. and so we got Richard is just amazing at everything and we got him and our friend Nate on board to help us get it fully produced and um so the song's been in the works for over a, a year. Yeah, over a year. So we are by the end of our segment here, we're going to play a whole minute of it because I want everyone to hear it. It really it sounds like Hunger Games. And yet it's funny, they may not even know you're out there yet. But I wonder if they have because you're also you have just some basic footage of do you have footage from their movie in your song? There there was a yeah, a fan from Brazil yeah. that just Threw it in there. Yeah, just took all footage from the Hunger Games movie and put our song as a background music to it, which was cool to see that there was Isn't that already, amazing? Yeah. yeah. He just wanted to help us with our cause, and he thought that making a video like that would make people see how much it really fits. Uh-huh. Well, and when you think, like, uh, Ed Sheeran made that, d- did the song for The the Hobbit. Was that the song he did? No, Fire. fire I see yeah, Fire. I see Fire. And mm-hmm. they just bring him in, and he sits down and plucks something out for a day, and then he makes this incredible song. Um, th- to me, this is a smart way to do it. And I I know the piano guys and I know Devin Supertramp personally. And these guys, they're big league. And they and the reality is, is you could probably do 30 more of these because if you have 100,000 fans that heard this one, you need another one. So one of the rules I've been told by all these guys <laughs> is you need about one a week. So get on it. <laughs> you were thinking. But what if this turns into something? I mean, 100,000 fan or 100,000 people listening to it and then you get subscribers and these guys make real money. Mm-hmm. You might not even want to just, you know, be a band. You might just want to do this and go to school. Yeah, and what's really cool is that it seems like the people that are fans of the song, like no one just likes the song. Everybody loves, loves the song it. that mm-hmm. does like it. Yeah. And so it's really exciting to see all the enthusiasm towards our group. And we've definitely talked about it, and we, we want to continue to do projects. And I think we want to keep focusing on music for major movies. You know what? Uh, you need uh, you need some music for Dumb and Dumber 3. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why you haven't targeted that yet. <laughs> That'd be a really it. dumb song. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, you can only imagine what that song would sound like. Um, so then when you put the song together, I guess, so Richard, you were more of the – I guess you were the, you were the video guy. You did the video too? Uh, well, that was just... And the mixing, I mean, I guess. Well, mostly I did the arranging. Did you? Did yeah. you really? Um, yeah, so they they wrote the song and then they came to me and said, hey, can you like make it all super epic? And I was yeah. like, sure. <laughs> so I add the strings and add some of the special effects stuff. And That's amazing. Yeah. Well, um, and then, so let's say you get a call. What are you going to do? You get a call from Hollywood and they want your... How do you split this up? I mean... Seems like I ought to get a part of some of this. <laughs> but really, because it's it, it's just it's being innovative like this. You almost have to stand out and show that the audience likes it, which is really all you're doing. And um, this, I mean, are you afraid of success? Because if it works, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that's a good thing. It is a good thing, isn't yeah. it? And I guess any uh, this could go to any other show as well. It doesn't just have to. Yeah, be Yeah, there's a lot of. This well, could be the next Bond. Well, there's a yeah. It's it's nice. I mean, Hunger Games is the goal right now, but there's okay. a lot of um, di- like Divergent and the big apocalyptic end of the world movies that kind of fall 
along the same Hunger Games theme. So if not Hunger Games, hopefully something else. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. And um, what was uh, Nate Young's role? He did a lot of the mixing and the drumming and recorded at his studio. Yeah. And, and he gave it. a lot of input on. We were we kind of did the back end, kind of asked what we should do on certain sections, and that kind of helped mold. Are you all BYU students? So Eliza and I are still in school at BYU. Yeah. And Richard and Nate have graduated mm-hmm. from so, BYU. Atta boy. <laughs> and. Um, did, when you thought of this, Richard, was this? I mean, you're are you out? You have a job. You're out employed in the world. You're you're as doing, a musician, yeah. yeah. As a musician, <laughs> yeah. So as much as a musician could be employed yeah. in the world. But um, when they brought the idea to you, what were you thinking? Um, I thought that was cool. Um, I I tend to have ideas when I hear music. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that they had like the initial hard work done, like the initial thing. Then I could I can tell. Oh, this is going to build, or this is going to be down down low so i have a hard time sometimes coming up with the initial idea or or choosing between too many ideas yeah no i do too so it's good that <laughs> like they came up with something that was already good and working isn't it interesting um because it may not some people may not quite know how much this online stuff is actually impacting the real music world right but Lindsay sterling who is if you've ever seen her out there she's the violinist that dances mm-hmm. and yeah it's it's the weirdest thing, but people love it, right? So Lindsey Sterling and did you see Wiz Khalifa? They were just together on um, on an award ceremony. I'm trying to find it here, but so Lindsey Sterling is just this big YouTuber. I think she has mm-hmm. five million followers or something subscribers that are watching her stuff every day. But she was just on um, with uh, Wiz Khalifa playing "See You Again." At, at a major award ceremony. And you sit there and you think, well, why would they need Lindsey Sterling dancing with a violin around Wiz Khalifa? Mm-hmm. On, and Charlie Puth, Puth mm-hmm. was singing his little falsetto version of it um, on the Billboard Music Awards. So there's a reason they have a YouTuber out there. Mm-hmm. And you're just trying to take advantage of this. It's a marketing opportunity. If you can get a following on YouTube, it's just going to propel your song. And then you'll be huge, and then you'll never come on BYU Radio, (laughs) (laughs) which I think is very arrogant of you all. (laughs) So is that the goal? Just get everyone to listen. Where can they go find it? So I think the the easiest place, the place where we're collecting the most views is actually Facebook video. Oh, really? So if you were to look it up on Facebook, you would just type in We Are Trend, and then you'd find our page, and it would be – Right there. We are Trend, but Trend is stands for Taylor, Richard, Eliz- Eliza, and Nate. Mm-hmm. Yep. Trend. Yep. Trend. But today, because Nate's so clever, not here, huh? it's Trey. Yeah, it is. It is actually quite clever. Um, and so, Facebook. What? What's the? What's the search again on Facebook? We are Trend. We are Trend. And then, or YouTube, you can also just type in Trend Liver Survive, and it'll come up as well. I think that's huge. And so everybody can go there. They can like it. And if they like it, it might run on their page, right, on their uh, news feed. Mm -hmm. And then every one of their friends will see it. Yeah, we'd love if people would share it especially. Yeah, share it. Because the more people that we can reach, the better. And then if you actually do hit it big, you're you're promising to come back and – and do it again and, and do the another interview with the Matt Townsend show. <laughs> of course, yeah. Oh, yeah. Huge. Definitely. Okay, so we want to leave everybody with a chance to listen to this incredible song. Again, um, 
the name, the full name of the song is what? Live or Survive. Live or Survive. And again, the group, my friends, Tren. Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend. Your guide on the side. We do what we can on this program to give you the tools, the ideas you need to grow a healthier, happier life. Again, that part's up to you. We'll just give you the tools. Welcome to the program. Coming up on the show in just a minute, uh, Greg McEwen will be joining us. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. If you feel like you are inundated, underwater, just can't take it anymore, he's going to teach us that uh, maybe what's killing you is success. One of the number one killers he proposes of being a successful person is the fact that you're a successful person. Because with success, you you end up having to keep doing the things you've been doing. And it makes it so you take on more things and most of them aren't even essential to your success. You end up saying yes to more people. So he's going to teach us how to have a disciplined pursuit of less. That'll be coming up next. And it scares me because I'm not sure anybody on this team needs to do less. I mean, I don't want to be rude, James, but just do more. In a less kind of way. Wait, so do more or less? Or less is more? Less is the new more. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. I'll just yeah. do less then. Mm-hmm. And it'll be more. Huh? Totally true. I don't follow it, but to- it's okay. Totally true. Um, but really, that's – I mean, I feel completely inundated just trying to keep everything that I've got spinning, spinning. And he would probably say, why don't you let five of those things fall? Because what if I if I let those fall, then all of a sudden I'm not going to keep spinning. Exactly. Exactly. You should have about two hours of time to think. We have so much information that you need more time to actually process the right information. We don't even have time to process. That's when I look at Twitter. <laughs> I'm processing information. But isn't that just giving you more data? Some of which I is irrelevant. I don't know. I follow a pretty active action figure Twitter news feed. So I think I'm sad. What? Sad. It's sad. What? It's just a brain is a terrible thing to waste. The Ant-Man movie is mere weeks away and the action figures for that one are awesome. Uh, are they tiny? 
Are they? Ant? They have both. They have small ones and big ones. Oh, awesome. there's a real thing coming out. A show coming out called Ant Man. Ant Man. Oh yuck! What? Ants. He's a guy who can shrink himself to the size of an ant, oh. but have the same strength as a normal human. Well, I thought he turned into an ant. No, he can talk to ants. Why? So he can use them as his minions, his army, to he get things accomplished. He can fly on the back of an ant. Hold right. He's Does he not remember as a child with a magnifying glass? It's different now. We're using science. <laughs> we're using science to pretend like we're, we're using, Ant-Man. We're using PIM particles to Pardon? shrink and to help fight crime hmm. against fellow really tiny bad guys called Yellow Jacket. Now, yeah. They ride a toy train that look. It's Thomas the Tank Engine, and it looks Is really this a intense. Cartoon? No, it's a live action, but it looks really intense until the camera zooms out and it's just a little train running around a track. But it looks really intense when it's small. You know, maybe last hour I talked about hobbies. Yeah, maybe you need fewer hobbies. Really? <laughs> and I'm just saying. I get the same reaction from my wife. Does your wife know that you're into Ant Man? <clears throat> yes, she's really annoyed by it. Which I think kind of fuels my my enjoyment. Yeah. You like torturing your wife. Sometimes. I just feel so bad for her. I mean, Ant-Man, I just can't get yeah. into that. It's okay. You I mean, probably, I, it's not, not, not made for you. I get the green hmm? hornet. No, lantern. They're both things. Is there a green hornet? Yeah. Was there really? Is that a car? Yeah, he's got a sidekick named Kato. Just oh. name a color and then a noun, and you're probably saying a superhero. Yeah, pro- or, or a supervillain. Is yep. there a red? A red uh, Avenger. Could be. Red Avenger? Possibly. He yeah. might He might be from the Soviet <gasps> Union because it There's could have been back in the Hood? 60s. There's Is a red a super- lantern. There is a red lantern? Yeah. Yes. You guys, okay. In fact, here on the, the screen of my phone, that's his emblem of the red lantern. That's my screensaver from my phone. Somebody tell me. <laughs> there are depths surrounded. There are depths to this that you don't know, so we may want to move on. Yeah, let's move on because I. So uh, yesterday, the president signed into law. Yes. The USA Freedom Act. Oh, good. So it, we're free. We re- are now free. Replaced the the U.S. Patriot Act. Yes, where so, we were, where we were patriots, but in bondage. We're now secure as a country. They're spying on us. Limitedly, but still. They have to now get a search warrant if they want to get to our phone data. They have to go to the phone company who already has it all. And the phone company has it all, and then they just get a warrant. And if they – now they're not just going to know who my mom is calling. They're not going to know that. They'll have to actually ask for it. If they think my mom's a terrorist, they now are going to have to go – If you don't account for the four other ways, they already have all that information anyways. Okay. So we took care of one of the four ways. Yes. But over the next few years, I'm hoping we'll be able to have really protracted discussions about the other ways they're finding our data. Doubt it. Okay. Well, well the next thought. presidential year, yes, it'll be an issue. It'll be great. Uh, Rand Paul launched the campaign against the data collection practices of the NSA, but the website he set up to reserve the right to share personal information with supporters with third parties. What? So, so he, he set up a website. Yeah. That he has, he he set up the for himself his randpaul.com. Yeah, that website reserves the right to share personal information of the, his supporters with third parties. Okay, so let me make sure I get this. So he doesn't like that the NSA has access to our data. Yes. However, go to his website, and he does like the idea that his website will share your data with third parties. 
or whoever his webmaster is. Yes. Oh, well, that makes sense. The presidential candidate set up a website that encourages concerned citizens to sign up in protest of the NSA surveillance. But on the privacy policy, it says that it has the right to send that data to or uh, yeah, send that data to with vendors, consultants and other service providers or volunteers. So he's going to share that information as necessary. But you're supposed to go to the website about sharing your information and he's going to take that information <laughs> and, and share it, share it. So well, you, you see the conflict there. Yeah. But that could be totally something he has no idea about. Because we just don't understand. He has people that sets up websites. Nobody reads the privacy policy. That's yeah. right. You just hit okay and move on. Yep. I just want to Terms get to of the service. Point. Who cares? Uh, the Iraqi security forces lost 2,300 Humvee armored vehicles when the Islamic State overran the northern city of Mosul last June. Wow. How many? 1,000? 2,300. Holy cow. That was from the prime minister of Iraq said that on Sunday. Okay. Uh, losses to the Islamic State, uh, just overall vehicles. Yeah. Kind of some totals they've come up with here. Overall losses include at least 40 M1A1 main battle tanks. Wow. We lost 40 of those, as well as small arms and ammunition, including 74,000 machine guns, <laughs> as many as 52 M198 howitzer mobile gun systems. So art- our, 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 yeah. what, our artillery. Yeah, we're, we're losing a lot of stuff here. Uh, the U.S. also continues to spend money on training. From 20, 2003 to 2011, the United States spent $25 billion training the Iraqi security forces to watch 30,000 of them run away in Mosul <laughs> as they faced off with 1,000 Islamic State fighters. The same happened a few weeks ago in Ramadi where 10,000 Iraqi soldiers fled ahead of 400 Islamic State fighters. But then they're, what they'll do then is And leaving behind all the weapons when they run away. Oh, they do? They don't drive away. They get out of the cars and leave. They just run away. So the Humvees, the tanks, yeah. the armored personnel carriers. They're just gone. They're all you just think you'd want to drive away. With the keys. But maybe you don't want that big target on you. But it so. seems like one of the things um, that's interesting is they would then the, – the ISIS people would then – or soldiers would then fill up these trucks that they've gotten from us with bombs, take one of their ISIS members that are just you know a dime yeah. a dozen – they say, and just go blow up a building. They did that in Ramadi. Yeah. And they knocked down city blocks. Well, it seems like if we'd want to win the war, yes. we'd quit giving them all this equipment. That would be At least idea. take the keys. Or something. I mean, you could hotwire it later, but make yeah. it tough. Yeah. What we need is like, you know how when you're caught uh, with a DUI, you have to breathe into a machine in order to get the car to start? Okay. We just need to get some device like that so the ISIS members can't start it. There you go. But not a breathing. Like, yeah. you know, a code. A special code only known to like, those Like those cars with the, the, the passcode on the outside uh-huh. of the door. Something yeah. like that, yeah. Or let's just, let's just seal all of those cars in those plastic containers that you can never open up when you're, like, on Christmas trying to open up there some technology. See, we have great ideas here. <sighs> um, study, California... An, al- an analysis of the tallest redwood trees in the Muir, M-U-I-R, woods, which are 12 miles north of San Francisco. Mm. They, uh, the oldest trees in there are 777 years old, oh. not the 1,500 years old once assumed. We were tricked. The study out of uh, Humboldt State University is the first to determine the age of these trees Again, 12 miles north yeah. of San Francisco. The findings mean that the two 249-foot-tall coast redwood tree 
was born seven centuries later than initially believed and dates back to the start of the Inquisition in the early 13th century. It also means the oldest and biggest trees found in the Muir Woods is just a baby compared to the huge trees further north. Now, the significance of this, do you know where this forest is? Have mm-hmm. you been to this yeah. forest? I, have, I, I chose not to. As I'm reading this, it's I'm only like, 700 years old. I'm like, why is this important to me? And I'm like, if you've seen the movie Planet of the Apes, here we go. That's where all the apes run to. They the, run into the this forest, forest to get away from the humans, create their own society, and eventually will take over the world from there. Do you think that these apes know that these aren't as old as they thought? I don't think they care. I think they're just hiding from man because man <laughs> has gun and man is bad. Man, gun, man, bad. So if you watch the movies, good. that's well, the forest. Again, another headline brought to you by the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, news that you don't get on every station. Or really want, maybe. Who yeah. knows? Interesting. But we keep bringing it to you day in and day out. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we will be talking with New York Times bestselling author uh, Greg McEwen of, on his book Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. How your success may actually become the catalyst for your future failure. We'll be talking about that when we come back with uh, Greg McEwen up next right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, if you've ever gone to one of those mandatory meetings with your company and they bring in a speaker, you know, a lot of times you get the motivational speaker guy, kind of like Chris Farley, who lives in a van down by the river, and he comes in and tries to pump you up and psych you up, because that's the real key, right? You just need to be more motivated, and that'll that'll get you going. Well, apparently there is a viral video out there that is... Um, it's 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 taking off and it's making its way around YouTube. Shia LaBeouf, the the actor from Transformers, right? He's done a lot of other movies. Again, I'm not always up on all of that, but uh, he's 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 an actor and he put together this. Like, what is it, James? It's like a, it's a motivational moment. It was somebody wrote a motivational speech that he then. Acted out. Yeah, I don't think many people actually know the backstory. It's starting to come out a little bit because this just barely went viral. But he was working with uh, a London Arts College called Central Saint Martins. Okay, and uh, they all uh, several students received an assignment to uh, submit a piece of text that was thirty seconds long or or something like that. And so then Shia LaBeouf came in and he uh, recorded in front of a green screen like 30, 30 minutes worth of these submissions. So a lot of them. Yeah, and so one minute in particular, one of the submissions has stood out. And it um, is Shia LaBeouf known for overacting? I mean, some people are known for overacting, going above and beyond. Yeah, Shia, Shia LaBeouf, well, I mean, he got his start on like Disney Channel, you know, doing yeah. Even Stevens and everything. And then after like doing Holes and everything, it seemed like he kind of fell off the deep end, you know, mm-hmm. like he showed up at, at a place uh, at a, 
uh, event with a paper bag over his head saying, <laughs> I'm not famous anymore, written on it. Wow. Just doing all these like weird things. And so a lot of people were wondering if this is another one of his moments. That one of his having. weird moments. But yeah. l- let's just let everybody listen to it. And then you decide, does this, and do you feel motivated after this? Just do it. Don't let your dreams be dreams. Yesterday, you said tomorrow. So just do it. Make your dreams come true. Just do it. Okay, Dad, I will. <laughs> Dad. Some people dream Dad. of success while you're going to wake up and work hard at it. Yeah. Nothing is impossible. I know, Dad. Get off my you back. You get to the point where anyone else would quit, and you're <laughs> not going to stop there. No, what are you waiting for? Dad. Do it. I am. Just do it. Oh my yes, heavens! Just do it. Oh, I don't feel motivated. It's the most angry motivational speech <laughs> ever given. But does it not remind you of like your dad telling you to mow the lawn after you've been sitting on your hiney for the last three weeks? <laughs> I don't care what it takes to get out there. You mow that lawn. Just do it. He's angry. That, to me, is overacting. Well, the the beauty about all of this and what Internet has done with it is that, once again, he did it in front of a green screen. Yeah, so it's so, free for interpretation now. Yep. Because you can put his body over pretty much any image Anything. Now. And so people – I've seen Star Wars. I've seen even like a Mad Max. Just They've been putting him in all these different situations where he's telling these characters <laughs> just – do it, whatever they're doing. Like in when Luke Skywalker's trying to lift the, the what, X-Wing the X-wing yeah. out of the swamp, Yoda's like, do or do not. There is no try. Instead, now we've got Shia LaBeouf yelling at him. Just do it. <laughs> Don't give me your lip. Just do it. And they call that Shia Walker, like Skywalker. Yeah. That's funny. But again, as somebody who speaks – I I've never found yelling that motivating. You should try it. I'm going to try it for sure. Because I mean, they even put Shia LaBeouf in a, a TED talk. That they uh, <laughs> had him give a TED talk. So it seems super motivational that way too. Oh yeah, huge. Just do. But it really did. It did it not remind you of your father? Not that your dad would yell, but just in this moment, like I don't care what it takes. <laughs> Get out and mow the lawn. Just do it. Yeah. Anyway. Fun stuff. Again, uh, there's many ways to motivate a human being. That's just one of them. Just one. So try that at your next talk. Next time you're, you're talking I'm, about I'm going anyone, to. Just, just yell at them. <laughs> and it works out really well. See how that goes. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be doing more headlines. And then we get to talk to our good friends down in Studio B, uh, BYU Sports Nation. Spencer Linton will be joining us. Uh, We'll find out who his guest host is today and find out what's coming up on their show a little bit later. I'm going to see if they're motivated by Shia and his great work. Uh, This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. 
We, uh, in the, you know, the run-up to our wonderful handoff and interview with the guys from Studio B at BYU Sports Nation, we wanted to get you caught up on a few uh, other headlines that you don't normally hear. These are probably some of the lighter, kinder headlines. And uh, who better to do that than our own Terry South from the South Beach Diet? What? Now, you're the inventor of the South Beach Diet. No, that's not me. You're the inventor of the Terry South Beach Diet. Minus the beach? Yes. Okay. There's no beach involved. I'm not (laughs) really a a beach guy. What's going on in the news? FBI? They were caught flying secret spy planes. For real? For real. FBI flies small planes with video cameras and cell phone trackers above as many as 30 cities. Wow. Without anything resembling a warrant, reports the AP. Well, you're just flying. Can an FBI agent not fly with just a little airplane? With videos and cell phone tracker, video cameras and cell phone trackers and all that? <laughs> yeah, probably not. Uh, these small, low-flying aircraft are registered with fake companies. Mm. So you can't track them back to the FBI, but they did because the AP's good. The AP's really good. The AP found one little area where they didn't really you know, make sure they had no connection and mm. they followed them back. The agency also insists... Or the FBI insists that secret spy fleet is only used for specific investigations, and the cell phone locating devices called stingrays were used sparingly, although the AP reports that it found in recent weeks that the FBI flights orbiting large enclosed buildings for extended periods where aerial photography would be less effective than electronic signals collection. Wow. So now they're circling large buildings, and they, they're, uh, as it says, they're video cameras to collect visual information or cell phone trackers to gather all the electronic information. And if you can't see anything, that means you're doing the other thing. So they're well, no, it's interesting. So do they, because they could get a warrant to go fly, I guess, over a building, but they would still get a lot of information that wasn't coming from the building. Possibly. But these, they were flying over cities. Yeah. And then as they say here, circling enclosed buildings for extended periods of time. Hmm. Where I guess you could take pictures of an outside of an outside of the building, but more than it's, likely it was the cell phone. It's secretive. A bureau spokesman said the program wasn't secret and that the planes are not equipped, designed, or used for bulk collection activities or mass surveillance. Well, but okay, mass meaning yes. countrywide, but easily block wide. Right. That's still a mass. It's kind of kind of weird. Yeah. Kinda, there, there are a lot mm. of questions there. The AP will continue to, uh, I guess, annoy the FBI with questions until they figure out what the, th- it's what the, the problem is. It's the is same there. old issue. How much liberty do you want to give up to be safe? I mean, these are the G-men. These, these are the scary guys. <laughs> in a, uh, They're protecting us. Other news, a kitchen manager in Aurora, Colorado's Cherry Creek School District lost her job last Friday after giving school lunches to students who didn't have lunch money. I had a first grader in front of me crying because she doesn't have enough money for lunch. Yes, I gave her lunch, Della Curry told CBS News. I'll own that I broke I'll own that I broke the law. A law that needs to change, Curry says. The students she helped didn't qualify for free or reduced lunch. Kids whose parents make too much money to qualify but a lot of times they don't have enough money to eat, mm. she said. That's so she problem. lost her job. The school district released a statement saying the law does not require the school district to provide the meal to children who have forgotten their lunch money. That is a district discretion. But doesn't every school have a, uh, have a policy for the little child that forgets their lunch? 
we there was one of these types of stories that happened in Salt Lake City. Yeah. And I don't know if we got down to the actual roots of the issue other than someone made a decision and everybody hmm. went with it. And it's like, do they have some sort of backup plan? Did they give people food? Well, I mean, it seems like, yeah, every, I remember, there I remember, ought to be a backup plan. You get an apple and some cheese. Yeah, I remember they'd make the kid a peanut butter and jelly sandwich yeah. and he'd have something to eat. That, that's really the important thing. Or Worry you, about the money in a minute and let's get the kid something to eat. Or I guess you could just fire the lady who showed compassion and that would end that. You wouldn't have that problem again. You yeah. just have a kid crying. <laughs> she stepped out of line, so she's gone. So wow. there'll be some outrage on that. The uh, earlier this or last week, the U.S. removed Cuba from its state its list of state sponsors of terrorism. Oh, Cuba's no longer there. That's good. Forty-five days after President Obama announced his intentions to make a change with our relations with Cuba, so it's happening. Wow, Cuba is becoming different. The social media, uh, when it comes to social media in the presidential race, apparently Ted Cruz and Hillary Clinton are winning the race so far. Really. Ted Cruz. A new study from George Washington University Graduate School of Political Management found that at least by social media standards, Hillary Clinton and Ted Cruz are leading the presidential race at this point. The report looked at how well candidates' campaigns fared by comparing the popularity of candidates' names and websites, as well as what words are shared in conjunction with candidates' names. Hmm. Of all declared 2016 presidential hopefuls, Hillary Clinton's campaign website received the most shares with 4.8 million social media and news mentions. Clinton, her name was frequently shared with words like champion, everyday, and American, which the researchers believe demonstrates that people are taking her campaign message seriously. Senator Ted Cruz's campaign website received the second most number of news and social media mentions, about 2.5 million. By social media posts alone, Clinton's website was shared 1,700 uh, 173,000 times versus 85,000 times for Cruz. Well, wouldn't we so. say, though, uh, if there's now 10 candidates in the GOP and there's yes. really two or now three is Martin O'Malley yeah, and O'Malley's three, in. but forever has been two or one. Bernie Sanders, I don't know his social That's media. That's probably presence. why she's got the edge because yeah. they're dividing their social media by 10. She's, you know, on her own. And back to the World Cup. Yeah. We're talking about the Sepp Blatter. The uh, president steps down. There's the corruption charges that deals with Russia and Qatar and their bids that they, uh, when they received, where they were awarded the World Cup. Qatar gets the 2022 World Cup. Um, According to some research that was done, it says, uh, on the surface, it's just another white-collar crime story. Rich, powerful men making themselves richer and more powerful says this uh, Christopher Ingram at the Washington Post. But a closer look suggests that there is a lot of real-world suffering happening as a direct result of FIFA's decision. The Post points out that the International Trade Union Confederation estimates that in addition of the 1,200 migrant worker deaths so far in building Qatar's World Cup venues, they feel it's going to get to 4,000 people could die in the run-up to the World Cup in 2020. Building the venues. Just work, workers, people in, in country just to build out the venues and now, build Now, Qatar, if I recall, that's the place that gets up to 120 in the summer. Yes. So they're building fields that really will never be used again. Stadiums. Well, they're air-conditioned. Yeah, but uh, and sealed off from the outside. So they might be used again, but... Uh, like the, maybe as a warehouse? Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. Like I saw a uh, video. I was watching Sky News because you can get that on uh, my Apple TV. So I, yeah. I play with that yeah. every once in a while. And they showed a video and uh, 
you see the uh, some of the uh, venues in Brazil that were used for the World Cup, and they're used as bus parking lots. Because hmm. they, they have to put the municipal busing system, and so they just Spend park all the buses. billions of dollars. FIFA makes billions, and then you're left with parking lots. Parking lot. Well, they have plenty of parking now. Well, and you know what? Honestly, just go to New York and see if they couldn't have more parking. They'd give anything to have Brazil's parking. You know, there's actually a huge store that's coming out that could be a new era for, for professional sports what? here in the United States. What? The uh, NFL just announced today that they came to a new deal with Yahoo that they're going to stream a game via Yahoo. Really? Yeah. Huh. What's, it, what's it going to be called? It, it's the Jacksonville Jaguars and Buffalo Bills Oh, they're going to stream oh, a, they're vi- gonna stream a real football a, game. A real football game. I thought game. you were thinking so, a video well, game. No. It's Buffalo and That's Jacksonville. That's great. On Yahoo. Yeah. So that that could be... But did you hear the sentence? It's Buffalo and... It's Buffalo <laughs> and Jacksonville. So calling it a real football game? <laughs> Oh, but oh. this is breaking the ice, though. I That's mean, this great. could be a huge deal for for future Here games. Like, Here we go. What it's is this going to do to the networks that used to air games? That's exciting. Yeah. And that was announced today. Yeah, I, they were floating it between you know Apple and Yahoo and Google and who was going to get their streaming rights. So that's interesting. Yeah, they said that they estimated about Yahoo had to drop twenty million dollars to make this deal. Yeah. Wow, big money for a great game. And it's just a test balloon. They're just trying it out to see, it, out. see how people but embrace it. But it. it's a perfect segue to go to our next segment. We're going to take a break, come back, and be talking to the guys at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, down in Studio B. We'll find out uh, who's going to be co-hosting with Spencer Linton uh, and find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to throw it down to Studio B and our good friends from BYU Sports Nation down there. Spencer Linton and Michael Elisa is filling in for Jerem Jordan today. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. It's it's me flying solo again, Matthew. <sighs> Michael's once again <laughs> prettying himself up. Is he shaving? I don't know if he's shaving or what. Look, he what's, just... What's with his facial hair problem? You think I take a long time to get ready for the show? Seriously, no. The pretty boy Michael Elisa... He's makes always... Me, makes me look super low maintenance. <laughs> you are so, so low maintenance. <laughs> is uh, is Jerem... Is he still in, you know, that undisclosed location? Oh, yeah. He's on the East Coast. He's mm. been sending out uh, Instagram after Instagram at... Famous locations throughout New York and Boston. Wow. Um, he met up with Christian Stewart, our quarterback, last year. Really? What What are they doing in back Boston? there? I don't know. I think Christian's – we're trying to confirm if he's competing for the New England Patriots and the OTAs. Mm, you know they're my favorite team. He says team. he's not going to play football, but like he keeps showing up in like pro day tryouts and stuff. So we'll, he's, yeah, we'll yeah. see. But see, I, that seems like a weird combination, those two. That seems like trouble. Little Christian Jer- and Jerem? Yeah. That seems like nothing but trouble right there. Well, Jerem's the bad influence on Christian. That's, that's so. exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> Isn't Jerem with his kids, his no, child? No, that's the thing. Oh, like, he's by himself. His wife and child are, yeah. are at home. He's out gallivanting with in-laws and this his is, sister yeah. in, on nope. the East Coast. Yeah, I'm going to put money that that's a problem. Uh, I'm gonna, I'll put money that we will see a, a picture uh, of you know, a, an arrest. <laughs> or 
something like that. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to say what it will be, but I will bet it will be on a TMZ episode. Yeah, hey, I have some great news. <laughs> what? Michael Elisa is in the studio. Michael. How are Clean you, brother? Shaven, looking, great. looking, fro- looking fly again. Hey, hey guys, ch- do this for me, Spencer. How does he smell? Oh, he smells. Smells good. Glorious. Glorious. Hey, uh, you guys, I know on your show are big into motivation, right? Yeah. yeah. So, have you heard of Shia LaBeouf's uh, motivational speech? Have you heard it lately? Have you ever heard of it? No. Okay. Is, is this something that is R-rated? No, no, because it's been edited um, <laughs> okay. and censored. So. But this is Shia LaBeouf just doing a little motivational speech. I want you to hear it, okay. and then I just want your honest feelings. At the end of this, do you feel like, A, you were motivated, or B, this sounded like a talk your father gave you? Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Just do it! Don't let your dreams be dreams. Yesterday, you said tomorrow. So just do it! Make your dreams come true! Just do it. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good, isn't it? Oh, here's more. You're gonna wake up and work hard at it. Nothing is impossible. Okay, Dad. You should get to the point where anyone else would quit, and you're not gonna stop there. Mm-mm. No. What are you waiting for? I don't know. <laughs> do it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just do it. What in the world? <laughs> it's so scary. Dad, I'm, I'm on it. All, all, I'm scared. All you scared? Think about is he talking to Optimus Prime right now? I don't know who he's talking. He's talking to a green screen. He's Samuel just Wick doing Wiki. this. He's acting this out. <laughs> or, or holes. It, it, Transformers and holes. That's when I, when I think I, of Shia. That does remind me of holes right there. I think there. of holes and, and Just uh, dig the hole. Just dig the hole. Here's the thing. I love Shia LaBeouf when he was on the Disney Channel and in holes. I thought, wow, what a, what yeah, a talented what a guy. young yeah. actor. He's just gone super weird. Don't you think he just did it too much? Yes. <laughs> John, do it. But it's scared. Don't did you not like get scared like I'm afraid he's going to come after me. Yes. Yeah. Like I he yeah. I think that if I don't do it, <laughs> he's going to hurt it? me. He's going to physically assault me until I do it. Oh, it's Does so he funny. tell that to himself every morning when yeah. he wakes up in the mirror? Yeah. That's why he's so on top of his game. That's like the mo- the motivational speech is it's amazing. Is he, is he trying to scare you? Into... Don't you think that that? Don't you think Bronco needs to, you know, bring that into the locker room somehow? Can we get Shia something. LaBeouf into a team meeting? That's my question. Yeah, that's a great. question. You know what? I think I'm going to have a chance to interview Bronco uh, on Media Day, and I'm going to I'm going to play this for him, and I'm going to see how he feels about <laughs> this totally form. Should. I'm going to to Bronco see how he get feels. A kick out of that. Don't you think that he would love that? And yes. to see if that's a good motivation because he's a good motivator. So. Yeah, Shia. I'll just I'll just see what Bronco thinks. <laughs> it's gonna be that's good. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's and not even just unbelievable. Motivating. I want. Here's the thing. I I don't want these young actors in Hollywood to go nuts. They are okay? though. And they a lot of them do though. That's what's so sad. I think it's that rock and roll music and the drugs. You know, I look at it's, Amanda yeah. Bynes and Lindsay Lohan I and know. Shia LaBeouf, and I'm like, why? No, yeah. stop it! Don't you think it was the holes? Maybe digging dig that many holes on one show. <laughs> I mean, who was his dad too, in that show? Too much sun, was, not enough uh, water. Uh, it was uh, wa- uh, walking. Um, yeah. No. Um, oh yeah. Was it walking? Was it? I don't know. He was in that movie. Christopher Walken? Yeah, Christopher Walken. Yeah. Nice. That, that wasn't his dad. No, that, he was, that was just the weird. Trying to make, trying to make the... Uh, you gotta do 
it. That was Henry Winkler. He was trying to make. That's right. It was Henry Winkler. The shoes not stink anymore with the peach thing or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Okay. The invention. So yeah, Henry. <laughs> so Too much Henry Winkler and Christopher Walken. That's exactly what it was. That's the problem. That's just a bad combination. <laughs> hey, so that, that's what we bring you. What What's going to be on your show? I mean, oh. if you can beat that. Oh, oh baby. baby, where do we start? Okay, so let's let me just tell you this. In reference to what we had been talking about, and we've been kind of plugging it out there on social media a little bit. I just got I just saw this tweet that said, "No Taysom Hill whimpers in fetal position." Okay. Wow. So <laughs> we're th- we're focusing on the 2016 schedule. So then you're like, why? What? what why? Why? 2015 is in front of us. Taysom Hill is going to be awesome. This is the toughest schedule, top to bottom, BYU's ever faced. Well, yesterday, Southern Mississippi uh, was a team that BYU was scheduled to play in 2016. Announced that they will not be playing the Cougars, opting for a series with Kentucky, and that the game with BYU will be played at some later date. In a future schedule, not 2016. So now BYU is looking for a team to fill Southern Mississippi's spot in 2016. And you look at the 2016 schedule, Matt. What is it like? It gives Michael Elisa serious anxiety. Bro, honestly. It's that hard? I had a little anxiety attack this morning when I saw that schedule. Harder than than 2015? Yes, and it's not close. Wow, that's that's great. Arizona, West Virginia, Michigan State, Mississippi State, Boise State, (gasps) Cincinnati. Okay. Oh, wow. I saw some people yesterday on Twitter say, hey, let's go get another Power 5 team. Bring no, on Bama. No, Woo! No, no. <laughs> Stop it. Let's just have a breather. Let's know, just, like, oh, yeah, UCLA is also on that schedule, man. You get to a point when, oh, my when, there's, when too much. But see, but see, they have to run those tables, don't they? Well, yes, but they need balance. Yeah, you need to also, yeah. We there's... need balance. We need, we need a few cream puffs, okay? <laughs> Like, <laughs> give, give me a cream puff team you'd want to throw in there for for starters. Yeah, how about Tulane or University of Alabama, Birmingham? Mm, I mean, Birmingham. just one, like a team that will compete, but you wow. know, most likely you're going to win that game because you're at home. Okay, yeah. and yeah, you yeah. might you could probably rest some guys if they needed to. You know, miss a game, miss a week, and and get healthy again for a bigger game later on down the line. It's just. It's too much. Like, if you want Texas or, you know, oh. even a Virginia, like, no, Can stop. Can you imagine with the, throwing stop one of with those? Another power a, no, exactly. Team. Stop it. You're yeah. going to give Michael Elisa seriously a heart attack. I'm just thinking about the players. You know what? My, I have a <laughs> son's. Water break. I, my son's flag football team would love to get in on this. Okay. Great. Is that too pow? Is that too puffy? Bring them in. Too, Bring okay. them in. The Orem <laughs> Renegades or whatever they are. <laughs> yeah. Why not? <laughs> but you know that's a great that's a great topic. I did not know. I thought they couldn't beat this year as far as competition, but apparently it's oh, done. Yeah. Next year blows this year out of the water. Is unreal. I hear twenty seventeen. Twenty seventeen is pretty good too. Like they have a neutral game with LSU and mm. Miss, at Mississippi State. So like, but I feel like they have enough time to create some balance. Like Tom Homo was in a tough position where he's like, "Well, all these great teams want to play us, and we have open dates." So yes, 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 yes. And then you look at it and you're like. Oh, uh, okay. Oh, this is I, bad. I tweeted out a little <laughs> little gif today with uh, the Spartan king, Leonidas. Oh, yeah, yeah. Calling on the Persians, saying, this is Sparta. Oh. And that's exactly what we're doing next year. Do you know what? That's yep. okay. We're a 300. Problem and, solved. Uh, Problem solved. Shia okay. LaBeouf. Shia, yeah. You bring motivate in Shia. Him, He'll motivate them. do it. They can Get do it. There. Just do it. Okay, guys, thanks. Uh, have a great show. Man. We will do that. Shia LaBeouf will solve it. Trust me, I'm going to get that in, that bug in his ear.
Broncos here. He'll, he'll get you through 2016. Um, great stuff there. Uh, again, coming up in about uh, five minutes or so, you'll be getting all of that and more on BYU Sports Nation. Uh, we'd like to end the show talking about a hero. Our hero today is an 87-year-old woman who saved her disabled daughter from a house fire. After their house caught on fire, 87-year-old mom took drastic measures to save her daughter's life. It was in Georgia, and um, in the middle of the night, the house caught on fire. Aline Callahan, an 87-year-old woman, was sleeping in her home in the night of June 1st when she was awakened by a sudden popping noise. She immediately jumped up, noticed a fire, and then she began fighting the flames with water in an attempt to create an exit. She then ran to her daughter Shirley's room, who is 67 years old and is bedridden due to her case of cerebral palsy. When the firemen arrived at the scene, they found Aline carrying Shirley in her arms, trying to get her to safety. They assisted in the rescue. Aline Callahan's son, Ronnie, told the news that he was so proud of his mom, not surprised by his mother's actions. He said that woman would never have left Shirley in there by herself. He said it would have gotten both of them. Um, it would have gotten both of them. No way she would have left her. That, my friends, is uh, not just the love of a mother, but uh, I think, honestly, just the the will of a human being. When we are down and out, 87 maybe, and you're in the middle of a fire, you can still pull out a miracle. And uh, on this show, we always want you to be able to see the miracles in life. There are miracles going on in every neighborhood, in every newscast, look for the miracles, because it's too hard in this world to just, you know, keep noticing the bad stuff. But then you all of a sudden have an 87-year-old Aline Callahan, and you know that, you know what, this life's filled with some pretty amazing people. So a little homework assignment for you. Start noticing the good in the world. That's one of the goals of BYU Broadcasting and this show specifically. We want you to see that there are miracles and there are heroes out there. And by the way, you're one of them. So keep it, keep it up. Uh, and again, we're here tomorrow. This, you know, this doesn't go away. We're back. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. Until tomorrow, make it a good one. <laughs>